In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, our Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, our treasure of a good and bestower of life, come and dwell us, and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, our good one. If I remember correctly, in the last talk, I think I opened up with the words of St. John Chrysostom, and for some reason, I'm compelled to open up again with the same quote. A certain wise man, when setting out which blessings are most important, included a wife and husband who live in harmony. There is no relationship between human beings so close as that between husband and wife if they are united as they should be. And by the way, uh, for those who are going to listen to this on the recordings, really you should listen to Talk 66 first before this one because this one assumes that you've already heard the other one. If you don't hear the other one first, what happens is this one might be too uh, uh, abrupt in that I went through a lot of detail to explain the last talk. In, in the last talk, those two verses that I went through, uh, I'm not going to go into the same detail this time. So when you explain to someone in a little bit of detail, that gives them the temptation to reject it become upset, but from what I heard from the last talk, especially women who actually said that they liked it. And when I say women, I mean brainwashed women because uh, today, or really everyone's brainwashed, uh, but women are in particularly are brainwashed with, when it's to do with feminism. And people really don't know what's going on. And people understand the feminist point of view better than the church's point of view. In the last talk, I went into a lot of detail and people actually at the end said that they found it very, very beneficial. And they also said that they didn't feel that it confused them at all. So, why I started off with this particular thing on harmony is because today we see that there are many websites to do with dating, to meet someone, Even one website, they even, they even call themselves eHarmony. And it's all about finding someone 
to live in a harmonious way. So people today are very thirsty. They really want to have a harmonious relationship. And I have to say that that's correct because what greater thing is there to have a relationship between a husband and wife which is harmonious that's a great blessing and happiness when you when you have a marriage which doesn't have that then the person's unhappy and we can see today that people keep on saying that they want to be united, they want to live in peace. Actually, the word harmony, when we look up in the um, thesaurus there, that's actually a lot of words. So harmony is also unity, union, oneness, agreement, coordination, peace, understanding and synchronization and many more. And that's what we hear. I want to have a, a relationship, a marriage which is peaceful. I want to be united. I want to be as one with my spouse. So the world today, especially in the West, with their failed marriages, are actually crying out for that. But St. John Chrysostom already knew that. And the quote that they're saying, a wise man, I think that's from the Old Testament. So... What's a great blessing is a wife and husband who live in harmony. But then he goes on and says, there is no relation between human beings so close as that between husband and wife if they are united as they should be. Now, that's the secret. People don't know how they should be united. That's the problem. People think that when they get married, it's like buying a car or a MP3 player or whatever they're buying, a dishwasher. If it doesn't work out, okay, you get upset because you, you lose your money. Sometimes you can get a refund. But people do the same for marriages, for, for, for their marriage. It's not the same. When something is in harmony, it proceeds in an orderly fashion. If not, everything's in disorder, like most marriages today. So people appreciate the value of harmony because of the great benefits it brings. But it only works because of something which we call the order of hierarchy. That is, obedience to those in authority. I've got for you here 12 examples in the world 12 of what I'm, what I'm talking about. Number one, most of you have seen in those Olympics what's called the synchronised diving or those, those people that swim and they're dancing or whatever they're doing in the water, all at the same time, they are really what we call synchronised. They are all working in harmony. Now, what do, we, what do we say about that? It all works well. Why? Because, one, they've got their coach. 
who are, by the way, is the authority. And then we might have the captain of the team, or even if those synchronised divers, where there's two of them, one usually is the senior person, the more experienced person. So we have this order of hierarchy. So we have that person's in charge, then under that there's another person, under that are the others, etc. Number two, in general we see harmony in sports teams. Again, there is a, a coach, the team captain, and all the players have their roles. The lower are obedient to the higher, and that, and that one could be obedient then to the higher. There's what's called the order of hierarchy. When that exists, then it all works in harmony. If they all were equal, it wouldn't work. If there was equality, using the word, the special word of today, it wouldn't work. Number three, we see harmony in a choir and an orchestra. We see when they play musical instruments, who's the, the supreme authority in there? The conductor. Whatever he says goes. In the choir, they sing beautifully. Yes, when there's obedience, when those who are in the choir are obedient to the choir director or directress. Each person knows their function, their role. If everyone was equal, then I don't think you're going to get much of a result. There has to be someone in charge for this harmony to exist. Then we go on to number four. We see harmony in an office setting. So we what? What, what do we notice there? We've got the CEOs, we've got office manager, team leaders, supervisors. There's this hierarchy. So you might be at, on that position. You might be just an ordinary clerk. Then you have to be obedient, using that word that people don't like. You have to be obedient to the person up, and that person then is obedient to the next person up, etc., etc. You've got to complain. You've got to go to your person first, and then there's all this what's called order of hierarchy. When people are obedient, when people keep to the order of hierarchy, then the office works beautifully and productive. We see harmony in the working of a factory. We have the foreman, we have managers, we have the supervisor. Well, I don't know them, I didn't have time to go and look it up. If there was no obedience, then there would be no order. And what would happen if you buy something that comes out of that factory? I'm sure it's not going to work. But because the feminists and the rest of the world say equality, one would think, shouldn't there be equality in the factory? Where everyone's the same. Would it work? No. Would there be harmony? No. Would there be productivity? No. And you wouldn't buy anything from them. We see harmony in the Navy, the Army and the Air Force. Now, they have a very, very distinct order of hierarchy. They've got all these ranks. They've got ordinary people and the corporals and sergeants and I don't know what, how, how they go, lieutenants and first lieutenants and... Uh, captains and colonels and just goes on and on, generals, five-star general, four-star general, three-star general. Without that, they would be a mess. 
and it's looked at very badly in the armed forces if someone's rebellious, disobedient. Is there equality there? No. Would, the, would, the, um, would they be able to function? No. Now, how would you like our country to be, to be protected by riffraff, by people that are just all disobedient, no one really listens? That's, and that's the beauty of the whole thing. It all works because of the order of hierarchy. Orders are orders. Even during the First World War, a lot of you know, during the, during the war there in Gallipoli where uh, they were given the order to go out of the trench and go towards the Turks, and they just got slaughtered, and they knew it. Uh, extreme example, but nevertheless, they were obedient. We see harmony in a hospital amongst the doctors and the nurses. There, they're really into the order of hierarchy. We have the, we have the what's called AIN, assistant in nursing, then we have the enrolled nurses, then we have the registered nurses, then among them, there's those who are more senior. Some of them are called um, specialist nurses. Then we've got the nursing unit managers in charge of that, of that area, and then it goes up, up, whatever, to the head nurse of the whole place, and you've got the, that's separate to the order of hierarchy of the doctors. Very distinct. Now, how would you like to go for an operation in a hospital in which the staff were not following the order of hierarchy? There'll be chaos. So, yes, a hospital that keeps to that works well, harmoniously and effectively. Now, again, why can't they all be equal, the same? Why can't all the nurses be equal? Why can't all the doctors be equal? It won't work. This order of hierarchy has been like this from the years and from um, centuries and centuries and centuries. Even the primitive tribes, they all had their, their, their chief, etc. That doesn't it just doesn't work. There'll be chaos. As we see harmony in government, local government, state government, federal, they've got all their levels. We see harmony in a school. The parents want to send their kids to a good school that, that works in a harmonious way. Why? Because they know the kids will learn. And what do we see there? We've got the principal, then we've got the deputy, and then we've got the head teachers, and we've got other teachers, and... Um, ye patrons, and all this order of hierarchy, very distinct in a school, and then it all runs, if people keep to it. When they don't keep to it, then there's chaos. And we see harmony in a monastery. We've got the abbot or the abbess. We've got senior monastics. And each is obedient to the other, to the one above. Even when they venerate in church, they, got, they go with the seniority senior clergy, followed down by the junior clergy, followed by the deacons, followed by the senior monastics, followed by the junior monastics, followed by the novices, etc. It's all beautifully ordered. It's like you see, it's like you're looking at heaven because everyone has their order. But if you go to a monastery where they don't take any notice of, of that, where they're disobedient, which is one of the, the worst sins in 
in, in the monastic world, no, nothing works. And when people go there, they appreciate that obedience because everything's beautifully, everything's beautiful and in order. And the last two, we see harmony in the church, the, the entire church, where we have different local churches and each one has their, has their Constantinople's first senior and then comes, I think, Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, Russia. Can't, there's all these different hierarchies. So when they even serve together, or there's, they each has their who's, who serves first, who's second, who's third. And you've got their, they've got their synods. And the church, would, we would say, is supreme to do with order of hierarchy. That order of the clergy synods, etc. And St. Paul says that he wants the church to have order. When the church is in order, then, it's, then it resembles heaven, where the angels are, have order, where the, where, the, where the angels are together in harmony. But what do we, and what do we notice there? The lower angels are obedient to the next angels, the next group's obedient to the next group, etc., etc., etc. Are they all equal there? No. We see harmony in the church services. Now, let's go away from the church as a whole. Just let's go to a service. You notice this especially in the Russian services. They, do it the, they actually do it the best. Whereby, you've got the bishop. Around him are the priests, and, each, and they are even got their own order of rank. Then you've got the deacons, and they've got their order of rank. Who's senior, who comes next, who's that? Then you've got the subdeacons, and then you've got the servers, the, the, the others who serve. And when you go to a Russian service, those who have gone, you will notice that it just is so coordinated, you get a glimpse of heaven. And it is beautiful because everyone is working together, because everyone is obedient to the other person. Without an order of hierarchy, there can be no harmony. Now, what am I trying to get at is, if that's true for all those things that I mentioned, I just, I just thought of 12, that seems to be accepted pretty much except for marriage, there there's equality, supposedly. And then they wonder why the marriages, the couple aren't living in a harmonious way and why there are so many failures. Because as St John Chrysostom says, yes, it's a great blessing to live in harmony as long as you know how that's done. Well, we know from what we just mentioned earlier on how, how they do it. But, and people accept that, as I said, most people accept it. Oh, yeah, I understand there's a general, I understand there's a captain, I understand this. They understand that without that it just doesn't function. But what people can't get through the, the skulls is that that's how it has to be in a marriage. More so. And without that order of hierarchy... There cannot be harmony. 
Now, that's the purpose of the talks. In the last talk, my aim was to examine three controversial statements made by St. Paul in his epistle to the Ephesians. And the three were, the part A, or well, I called it A, wives should submit to their husbands in everything. That's Ephesians 5, chapter 22, or there's another one, 24. And B, for the husband is the head of the wife. And C, and the wife must fear her husband, Ephesians 5, 33. Now, I covered in the last talk part A and part B, which took four hours. But I didn't have time to do part C, and today I will be doing part C. But I feel that I want to summarise part A and part B, just to remind us a little bit, so that when we go to part C, it all blends beautifully, hopefully. Now, the blurb for the last talk, which is talk 66, the heading, what I called it was, wives, submit to your husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife. From God or from man? Because a lot of people say today they're man-made laws. They're man-made laws, made by man, made by males, to subject women to them. And that's the main argument of the feminists. I called it that because I wanted, when someone sees it, to get bothered if they are being brainwashed by the feminist movement. Wives, submit to your husbands... For the husband is the head of the wife. What I did is I incorporated part A and part B into one heading. And then I said at the end, from God or from man? And then I go on with my the first paragraph of the blurb is, over the last few decades, a storm has been raging over the roles of men and women in marriage. St. Paul's words regarding women have caused many to accuse Christianity of misogyny, that is the hatred of women, Two particularly controversial statements that he makes are, quote, wives should, meet, should submit to their husbands in everything, and the husband is the head of the wife, end quote. The question arises, are these verses meant to be interpreted literally? And if so, is it possible to fulfil them in these modern and, in inverted commas, enlightened times, being sarcastic? because people believe that we are living in the 21st century. Society believes they've progressed now. They're enlightened. The church is backward. A lot of things from the past is all superstition and bad, and that they live in this new time that doesn't need any of this. But if they're so enlightened, why are they so mentally ill? And why are there so many suicides? And why can't they keep marriages? And why can't they take care of their children? And why is there so much crime, sicknesses? So that's the, that was the first paragraph of the blurb. We discovered in the last talk that, yes, those two quotes are meant to be taken literally. 
Before I go on to where I was going, just I forgot a note. As um, I mentioned, the feminists and even some people within the Orthodox Church, even clergy, think that same, or some actually go straight out and say St. Paul was a misogynist, that he hated women, to make those statements. Now, one Orthodox clergyman, which I have mentioned in the past, he went as far as to write words to the effect of traces of misogyny, hatred of the body, and fear of sexuality can be found in the writings of Apostle Paul. And that's even blasphemous to say it. And he's an Orthodox priest. In the same book, if I remember correctly, I think it was him, he also said that perhaps St. Paul had been married, previously married, and that he had a bad marriage, a bad experience, and because of his bad experience, he had a dislike of marriage. And that's why he speaks like that. Don't be naive and think that all because someone wears black and vestments, that what they say is correct. Now you might say, well, that's the same applies to you. Yes, that's why what I say is offered to the church, people listen, and then if I'm saying something wrong, then there can be a, uh, a reaction because the church is like an eye. We've mentioned this before. The, like an eye. When, when you have an eye, when your eye is so sensitive, one speck, the eye becomes so irritated, it's so painful, it won't calm down unless you get whatever's in the eye out. That's the same as the church. When there's heresy... When there are wrong teachings, the church reacts. People react. And the church does not calm down until it has got rid of that heresy, that wrong teaching. Sometimes that might take 100, 200 years. So, for example, today we have the, the heresy of ecumenism, that we're all the same. That's a heresy. Those hierarchs, those priests who say, who believe those things are heretics but within the church. They are what we call wolves in sheep's clothing. See, when a, when a wolf wants to get close to the sheep, we say that he would wear the, the wool so he can look like a sheep, so he can get closer to the sheep, so he can eat them. And these people, they look like Orthodox clergy, but they're teaching heresy. Now, this other clown that actually said that St. Paul with all these things, it's uh, shocking. But this is the new breed that's coming through, you see, the ones that have, that have been, the ones that have been educated in the universities but not educated in the spiritual life of the church. Now, Eustin Popovich, St. Nectarius, and so many Orthodox saints were educated in theological schools and universities, but they also were spiritual. And therefore, they're enlightened 
and we're able to understand what's the correct teachings. These people are blind as bats. I got some feedback from one person. Well, I got feedback from the last talk of a lot of people. But I thought this, this woman that wrote to me, she actually pretty much summarised what a lot of people were saying. And I, and I felt that, that I wanted to read that to you. No one knows who she is. Could be from England, could be from America, could be from Canada, doesn't matter. Could even be from North Korea, who knows. Now, let's, let's read. She said, because uh, I asked her, did you hear the talk about feminism? I wanted to know her opinion. I always like getting feedback so I can see how people are reacting to it. Positive or negative? We have to, uh, that's important to know. And she said, I did hear your talk about feminism and I agree 100%. Uh, there is a high divorce rate today because of feminism, due to women taking on the reins of the household when it should be the husband's responsibility, with the help of his wife, of course, and together in serving Christ. It was absolutely beautiful and we don't hear it often. I didn't agree with her there. I, I personally believe that we don't hear it at all. Judging from what people say, they, most people said to me, I've never heard it before. It, it has also made me view some of the issues in my family in a totally different light. I've learned a great deal from your tour, 66 talk about submission. Funny enough, I meant to ask my spiritual father what St Paul had meant when he said these words as I could not understand them completely meaning the words that women should submit to their husbands in everything, and why the husband has to have final say in all things, and mostly because I wondered what the wife should do if the husband is anti-Christian. After hearing your talks, however, it all makes utter sense, and I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to hear them. I was quite surprised, even after the talk, the last talk a lot of women were saying that they didn't become disturbed or upset and what's that showing? That even amongst people who aren't religious, there is a lot of women who do not want to identify themselves as feminists. Actually, I think in America, maybe 40% only. Women don't want it. Why? Because the feminists want women to hate men. They don't want, as we're going to hear in a minute, that relationship of a woman with the man, uh, they don't like that. And women went along with that for a while, or should I say they were brainwashed like that for a while. But now they're starting to say, you know what, I don't like that. No, I want the man to be the head, or I like the man to, to um, say nice things to me. I want the man to be a protector. I want, man to, I want a man to take care of me, which we can see, which you shouldn't read him anyway, but from what I've heard from all those eHarmonies, these dating websites, there's all different names of them. And when you read a lot of those things, that's what they want. The man says, which, which we read in the, in the blogs that I read in Talk 60, 66, the, the, men, the men say, I want a wife so I can take care of her, be a protector and a provider. And the women, a lot of them say, I want a man who will be that. 
just like abortion. Of course, they don't show it on the television, but big march in, in America of hundreds and thousands of people, even young teenage girls or women in their 20s, they are protesting against abortion. And the feminists are saying, what is going on? What have we done wrong? And the answer is very simple. What you believe stinks. That's simple. It doesn't give anyone any happiness. It breeds miserable people. So, some people might say, oh, you're being very polemical. That's the job of the priest. When there's something which is influencing Christians, then the priest has to take a stance and educate and warn the people. If he doesn't do that, then he's not doing his duty. So part A was that we examined very closely wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, which is Ephesians 5.22 and Ephesians 5.24. So also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And I went through, firstly, a lot of things about obedience, the benefit of obedience in general. And I said it's interesting that Ephesians 5.21, just before St. Paul tells says that wives should submit to their husbands, St. Paul says, submitting to one another in the fear of God, that people should submit to one another, which is what I was talking about at the beginning of the talk, which is that everyone has an order. The senior, the, the junior, the, the younger are to be obedient to those who are higher than them. And throughout the epistles of St. Paul and St. Peter, etc., they do speak about this, be obedient to each other. Because God gives his grace to the humble, but doesn't give his grace to those who are proud. And we learn humility through obedience. So I went through all that then. Let's see basically what I meant. I found it here. 1 Peter chapter 5, line 5, where he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So St. Peter is saying there clearly that Everyone should be submissive to each other depending on the order of hierarchy. The devil does not like obedience. We live in a very rebellious time. Because if you're obedient to someone, even at work, that's why they leave work a lot, especially the younger ones, they just leave work. Because people don't like to take any orders. And then they think they're going to make up some computer game or something that's going to make them rich. Like a, like a deceived little person. They, they stay at their houses and they start to try and develop some type of computer 
uh, application or whatever you call them, they're going to make their money like that. Because they can be their own boss, you see, because they don't want to be under anyone. They don't want to be under their parents. They don't want to be under the church. They don't want to be under a boss. That's what it is, rebellion. The devil loves rebellion. What did he do with the, um, with the angels before the earth was created? Because he was an angel. And what did he say? He said to the angels that why should we be under God? See? Why should we be under him? What was he demanding? Equality. He says if we can be like God. So he said let's rebel. And a lot of them did rebel and they became demons. The others didn't rebel. So we see this rebellion first in heaven. We saw this rebellion in paradise with Adam and Eve. And we see it down to our time. Rebellion equals demonic. Disobedience equals demonic. Pride equals demonic. That's all the fruit of the evil spirits. While the fruit of the Holy Spirit is obedience, humility, etc. That's the difference. Now, some of you could say, well, that doesn't sound right, but, but those same people don't like it when their own children become disobedient. They can see, well, how can they function in a house when the children are becoming disobedient? What's the solution? You go to a GP and you sedate them. You put them on these, um, all these pills to make them obedient. And the only reason they're obedient is because they're out of it. They're completely drugged. And that's the answer. Oh, now we've got, now we've got obedient children that look like vegetables. What do the saints and the elders say about uh, this thing about wives submit? I went through them last time. I'm just going to read them through quickly as a summary. Actually, that woman was correct in the email. You can't, it doesn't matter how much you hear it, you become enlightened every time because you just say, I can't believe that this actually is so clear. And we shouldn't have that attitude which is, oh, I already heard it last time, why should I hear it again? But you don't mind um, hearing the same message from the feminists continually. No one complains about that, those who are for it. Or, or the other sins, again, or the other type of things, which is against marriage, against fidelity, to be pro-abortion, women's rights to have abortions. All these things are just continually being said, then why should we get upset if we hear this, this, what the saints are saying, which some of you might only hear once every couple of months. But the other stuff you hear every day. So, Elder Thaveos of Serbia, I want to use modern people, but I also want to use 
ancient saints. Now, why are the modern saints important is because they live in our times, they, they are living in our, in our circumstances of today, and they can tell us whether, for example, what's been said in the past can, can apply to today. Because some people say, oh, that was said 1,600 years ago. Oh, that was said 2,000 years ago. Oh, that doesn't apply now. But we see that the saints who are holy, full of grace, they explain it to us, and we see that what they say is exactly what the ancient saints said, which means that it hasn't changed. We can't say, oh, that was back in the old days. Wives submit to your own husbands. That was then because, you know, people weren't enlightened or because uh, it was a man's world and men had women as slaves, which, of course, they did, but not in Christianity. Elder Thaveos of Serbia, who passed away in 2003, so only 12 years ago, considered obedience to one's husband to be a commandment of God. He said, by disobeying God's commandment, wives create an atmosphere of hell in their homes, end quote. By disobeying God's commandment, what's the commandment? What does he mean by the commandment? The commandment that women should be, should be obedient to the husband. That, that's a commandment. So when St. Paul said it, he said it as a commandment, not as something which is optional. Number two, St. Tikhon of Zadonsk, a Russian saint who passed away in 1783, he said, as the apostle teaches, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then he quotes that. And then he says, let her be obedient to you and not you to her. A man must not treat his wife as a slave. In other words, or because she's obedient to you doesn't mean she's your slave. So he says it clearly that that's what it means. Now, I wrote a little note here. People today, because of pride and ego, believe that any form of obedience is slavery. I already mentioned that. There is a negative towards obedience. I already covered all that. Elder Epiphanius, a Greek elder, he died in 1989, advised wives to obedient to their husbands. And he gave an example of what happens if a couple wants to go on a holiday and one, one of the, the husband wants to go to the seaside, the woman wants to go to the mountains or something like that. And then he says, you will voice your opinion, but you will allow him to undertake his responsibilities. He said there that if one doesn't have the final say, there will be chaos and there could be a breakup. And unfortunately, today, if we were to go to the courts and read a lot of the... Uh, state the, all the the affidavits and all that why the people are divorcing a lot of it's got to do with those type of things it could even just be something as small as the colour of the curtains one more section which is St John Chrysostom what he said which I read to you before a certain wise man when setting out which blessings are most important included a wife and husband who live in harmony there is no relation between beings so close as that between husband and wife if they are united as they should be. Now, St. John Chrysostom goes on in the next section and explains to us how they should be united, how a wife and a husband can live in harmony. Let's have a look what his answer is. He said, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He quotes that. That's the answer. Because when harmony prevails, the children are raised well, the household is kept in order and neighbours and friends and relatives praise the result. 
great benefits both for families and countries are thus produced. When it is otherwise, in other words, when women aren't obedient to the husband, when it's otherwise, however, everything is thrown into confusion and turned upside down. And then he goes on to the, using the examples of the army. When the officers of an army are at peace with each other, meaning they are following, they've got that harmony, that um, obedience, that, well, that's what it means by a peace with each other. Everything proceeds in an orderly fashion. And when they are not, everything is in disorder. St. John Christum uses the one example, I used 12 to show you that harmony, even amongst worldly things, can only be achieved if there is obedience one to another in the order of hierarchy. St. John Christum continues, for the sake of harmony, St. Paul said, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. St. Paul means that even if the wife does not obey for her husband's sake, she must do so primarily for the Lord's sake. Because the quote, the, the quote is, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And St. John Chrysostom is explaining that what St. Paul means, as to the Lord, it means that this is a commandment from God. So St. Paul means that even if the wife does not obey for her husband's sake, even if she doesn't want to obey because she doesn't like her husband or she doesn't feel whatever, he says, you still do it because that's what you're required to do. When you give in to your husband, consider that you're obeying him as part of your service to the Lord. So he's saying, if you're an Orthodox Christian and you want to do the commandments of God, that's one of them. And then he goes on and St. John Christmas says, if he who resists the authorities, that is governments, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, how much more severely will God judge someone who resists on external authority, but the authority of our own husband, which God has willed from the beginning? You see, the church teaches that all authority is from God, whether it's in the time of the Turks, because of the sins of the Orthodox Christians in the Balkan countries, God permitted the Turks to come. So they were there with his permission. And the church taught the Greeks and the Serbs and whoever else was under them to be obedient to them because they have been put there by God as long as what they're telling you doesn't go against God's commandment. And St. Paul threatens people and says, well, if you aren't obedient to those in authority and you're deserving of punishment, how much more, and that could even be to an authority which, as I said, aren't believers. We read in the lives of saints in the first three, four centuries when the, when the Christians were being um, killed by the pagans, and then they would, the, the Christians would stand in the arena and the emperor would ask them to offer incense to the idols or whatever and the Orthodox Christians say to, say to him, Sir, we are 
your servants. Now, these are Christians talking to an emperor who didn't believe in God, but believed he was God, and used to do sacrifices to demons, etc. Showed respect and say, we honour you. We are obedient to you. We pray for your kingdom. But we cannot deny our faith. We will do all that. That's why even we see that the saints would bow down even to governors and kings that were atheists as saying, okay, you are in charge. We respect that you are in charge. But when you tell me to do something which is against the commandment of God, then I won't do it, which is offer incense or whatever else they told them to do, and then they would be uh, killed. What I'm trying to show you is that... um, Even the Greeks, during the time of the Turkish occupation, showed respect to those in authority, to the the Turks. And the Greeks knew that the Turks had taken over because of their sins. Just like the Russians knew that God allowed communism to come because of their sins. And that's why they were obedient as long as what they said was not going against God's commandment. So, St. Paul says, if we are required to be obedient to those in authority because they've been appointed by God, and if we aren't obedient, we, we are deserved to be punished. How much more does one deserve to be punished if they are not obedient to their husband, women not obedient to their husband, which God has willed from the beginning, that God has, that's how God made everything. So using logic, even an unbeliever can see Really, I believe that this makes sense because when there are two chiefs, then disagreement will occur and harmony would not exist. So all, so all those examples, the harmony. Blessed Theophilact, which is a great saint of the church, he interpreted the Gospels and the Epistles and he basically summarised St John Chrysostom's works. And he said, on that line about women submit to your husbands, he said, this means that wives should submit to their husbands, knowing that by this obedience they are serving and submitting to the Lord. That is to say, even if the wives did not submit to their husbands at first, little by little they ought to submit to them for the Lord's sake. I like that because that shows you that obedience is difficult for, for all of us. And sometimes people do get married and a wife, for example, finds it difficult to submit. And he's saying little by little, make a struggle because this is God's commandment. As St. Paul says to the Romans, 
He who resists external authorities resists the commandment of the Lord who ordained the external authorities. How much more so does the wife resist the commandment of God when she resists her husband? On the other hand, the wife who submits willingly to her husband is submitting to the Lord who ordained marriage. So he basically summarised St John Christus, that's why I put it in, that the marriage has been ordained by God and that's how he wants it to be. Now, another little section here. Saint Blessed Theophilact explains the part which says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. There he says, But why does the apostle command that the wives be subject to their husbands in everything? Must she submit to him no matter what the circumstances are? Should she submit even if her husband compels her to deny the faith? Of course not, for he is addressing not impious but pious husbands. So uh, when St. Paul says to women, submit to your husbands, he means Christian husbands. Now, what happens if the husband's not really leading a spiritual life? Then St. John Christum says, you submit as long as what is being said is not contradictory to God's law. St. John Chrysostom makes it clear, he even says that if there's fights continually to do with the faith, we are all, we are all called to peace, and it's, he actually said it's better to leave. But of course, I went through all that in the, in the um, divorce talks, where I say that that has to be a, a last resort, because... People need to do prayers and get advice. And, and some people want a divorce before they even made any attempts themselves and before they even prayed or asked for prayers. And that's the end of part A. And part B is for the husband is the head of the wife, if you remember correctly. And I read for you in the last talk, St. Nikolai's homily on inequality, where St. Nikolai writes, God creates inequality, and that men don't like it, they complain about it, as we see today. And then he says, are men wiser than God? When God creates inequality, it means that inequality is wiser and better than equality. Even as I said it before, even in heaven, there's no equality. God creates inequality for man's good, but man cannot see, but men cannot see the, the good in their inequality. God creates inequality because of the beauty of inequality, but men can see no beauty in it. God creates inequality out of love, but men can see no love in it. When we say men, we mean all people. From then till now, sinful men have waged war on inequality. In other words, people, are, a lot of people, are continually waging war against inequality when in reality they're actually waging war against God who created inequality. And he says, rich and poor are not in the world by chance. We know that 
the Lenin and all the others in, in Russia, they tried that. They said, oh, we're going to have everyone to be equal. Didn't work. They think that everyone's going to be the same intelligence on earth, the same health, the same status, the same of everything, to have like clones, like a world where everyone's the same. And I mentioned in the last talk that that's, that's um, a very boring world and silly. He says he rich and poor are not in the world by chance but by God's most wise providence. And God would be able to make everyone equal in wealth, but that would be absolutely foolish. In that case, men would totally be independent of one another, which is what they want for marriages to be, that the man and the woman are independent. But that's not what a marriage is, that man and woman are dependent on each other. Who would, who would then be saved? How could anyone be saved? For people are saved through their dependence on one another. The rich depend on the poor and the poor on the rich. Being rich is not a sin. Being poor is not a sin, depending on how you take it. If you're poor and you grumble and you complain and you are too proud to accept help, uh, you steal, then that's a sin. And the rich, if they don't help the poor, that's a sin. But together, that's the beauty where the world functions. But to think that the world's going to be all equal is uh, a delusion. It will never be equal, nor does God want it to be equal. That's what people don't understand. They go, oh, it's unfair. It's unfair that there's poor people. Others say it's unfair that there's rich people. Why are there sick people and why are there healthy people? Why are there intelligent people and why are there people that are slow? It should be all the same. That same mentality is what they're doing in to today to do with marriage. And Elder Joseph, the Hesychist, he actually says, God has shown inequality in all of his creations. God made all things in wisdom. He also spoke against those who believe that inequality is bad. It's not, it's not a sin for someone not to be smart. It's not a sin for someone to be smart. As long as each accepts their situation in a Christian way. What we strive for is spiritual health, salvation, but a person who's rich can be saved, a person who's poor can be saved, a person who's sick can be saved, a person who's healthy can be saved, an intelligent person can be saved, a person who's not intelligent can be saved. Does it mean that we don't help the sick? Yes, we do, but with the view of that we're not going to have the whole world to be one. St. Gregory the Theologian wrote, forget about the silliness of equality among the sexes that some of your contemporaries preach, even then, which is around, I don't know, 1,600 years ago? Try to understand the obligations of marriage, meaning 
Try to understand that a man has his responsibilities, a woman has her responsibilities. That's not equality as such. And Elder Epiphanius, a Greek elder, he says that we see the law of nature and the written law of God agrees, which gives the leading role to the man. The same elder says God gave the man the leading role of responsibility and initiative, and great is that responsibility. And the Russian saint elder, Father John Krestyankin, who passed away in 2006, and he said, you are the head of the family, and it's your responsibility to care for your family's spiritual and material well-being. You yourself should think and act in this way without fail. May God give you wisdom. You see, the truth of the matter is a lot of men today are quite dysfunctional. And they find it hard to lead their families. And this is creating a lot of problems. Men today are getting married with the maturity of sometimes a 14-year-old. And priests, I believe, should not really allow them to get married until they understand their role as being the leader, the head of the family. And it's a, it's a very big responsibility. And I've dealt with women for a long time now, and I, can, and I can say that this is the big problem. The biggest complaint is that they just don't lead. Psychologists tell us that the anger a woman feels towards a man who has allowed her to take over the leadership of that family is the deepest anger of all. That's not a saint saying, this is just basic psychology now, what people have discovered. That, and again, it goes against the feminists who say, no, women want to be the head. But no, it says that, the, that the, the anger a woman feels towards her husband, who has allowed her to take control of everything, is the deepest anger of all. Many cases of delinquency and even mental illnesses of the children come from homes where the father has ceased to be a leader, to be the leader, has ceased to be the source. Now listen to these words the source of compassion, love, and protection. Compassion, love, and protection. That is how great is the role of the husband. And St. Paisios now canonised a few weeks ago by Constantinople, said, St. Paisios said, sacred scripture says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, God has determined that man should be the head of the household. For the woman to be the head instead of the man is disdain for God, disrespect for God, because God first made man and then Eve. So here we have a newly revealed saint, a newly canonized saint, who lived in our times. He died in 1994. And he saw the situation of the world. And he says exactly what all the other elders said, what all the other saints said, have said throughout the whole of the 2,000 years of Christianity. Hasn't changed. 
God has determined that man should be the head of the household. I'm going to explain more what this head means. I already said a little bit before. Okay, we'll have that sandwich break now. So that's it. So off you go. Also, I should mention with that letter that I read what's important is that that person who wrote that email is a person who actually has been in the church for many years and reads a lot. And even though she's read Elder Paisius and a lot of books where I'm taking a lot of this material from, and a lot of you people also have read, and a lot of these things that I'm reading you probably have read, but you miss it. That's why it's important to do detailed talks on that matter so that it can actually get through better because we can miss things as we're reading. She actually missed a lot of it. A lot of the elders explained, as we've noticed, clearly, but she said, oh, I didn't know what it meant that the man is the head or to be um, obedient, you see? And that's why it's important to listen to detailed or read detailed books on this uh, topic. So, just quickly, St. Gregory the Theologian wrote, Be aware that you are a woman and that you have an important and great purpose and destiny. However, your purpose and destiny is different to that of your husband, who must be the head of your household. And St. Gregory was passed away in 391. He's the same person who said earlier that the equality in marriage is silly. St. Paisius also, he said, God has created all things in wisdom. He has granted man with certain virtues and women with other virtues. He has granted man strength and manliness so that he can manage when things are difficult and so that the woman will submit to his leadership. For if God had, had also given the woman the same manliness, the family wouldn't succeed. So that's what the feminists are against. They don't like this gender differences. They don't want for it to be said that the man has different qualities to a woman. They want it to be the same. And that's why people are moving away from feminism. A woman wants the man to have that manliness, that leadership, and the man wants the woman to have that obedience, but also her softness, her um, character and her respect and to look at the husband as a source of love. She wants to be loved, she wants to be protected, etc. That's what they say and even worldly people are saying that. A lot of the men who are complaining about feminism, they say it's like you have to apologise that you're a man that you're not allowed to show anything manly because, they, because a lot of these feminists get upset. And the women are saying, no, I want the man to be manly. So that's, that's where it's all going for them bad because they're going against nature. St. John Christum said, St. Paul has assigned to husband and wife each his proper place, to the husband one of leader and provider and to the wife one of obedience. Now those two words, the man is to be a leader and a provider. Now that 
seems to go all over the place because today a lot of times women get more money, women are working as well, so it's not like the old days where the men were the only ones working and they weren't working, therefore he was the provider. How do we look at that then? How do we look at the, the fact that uh, women are bringing home money, sometimes even more money than the men, due to the women's, all these, all these um, programs that they've done, which all is geared towards women with, with payments and help and everything. And that's why in America they actually say that uh, women are actually more educated than men and that women are getting more jobs than men. So what do we do? What do we say? Should a woman give up her job so she can be dependent on the man? Should the woman get less money just so the man can be the provider? I will say one thing, that a lot of men become uh, quite upset and it, they become disturbed when they are not being providers because by nature that's what they want to be. And they become quite dysfunctional, mentally ill, depressed. They feel worthless. Some of them commit suicide uh, because of that very thing, because it's in the nature of man to be a provider and protector. And this is where the problem occurs today. So the, the, the question we have to ask is, what do we do? And I'm going to be answering that. I think it's coming up very soon, yes? Even if, if the wife is more intelligent, makes more money, has a higher position, she can still respect her husband, allowing him to lead the family. And a good example is Queen Elizabeth. I watched a documentary a few years ago and I was quite surprised. Even though she's the Queen of England, you might say that she hasn't got power. She does have power. But with regard to the household, she still allowed her husband, Prince Philip, to be the head. That's very interesting. With regard to the money, women have to make a decision whether they want their career more than success in their family and also for the success of the upbringing of their children. Now, on the radio lately, it's been quite a bit, there's this controversy going on about um, women who choose to work. And some women ring up and say, I have to work. And there the guy on the radio was saying that that's not fully correct because a lot of times women don't have to work. Then Fred Knoll comes along, who's a politician and a religious person, and he said that the daycare centres are day orphanages. And a lot of the feminists got upset about that. A lot of women are giving up their positions because they want to take care of their children themselves. They don't want to give them to these daycare centres 
They want to take care of their own children. And also they're getting tired because they were brainwashed from young that they can do anything. And hence that song that I mentioned, I Am Woman, uh, where if you know the words of it, you know, they say, I am woman, I'm strong, I'm invincible, I can do anything I want, no one's ever going to put me down again. This is what they were brainwashed. That song would be good as a theme song for a cartoon which is about Superwoman or something which is not real. Where, this, where the cartoon character who's Superwoman sings that, I'm invincible, etc. Yes, that makes sense. But to actually believe that women actually are singing it and believe that they're invincible, that they can do anything they want, they can have children, they can have careers, they can be this, they can do that. All these things are, are becoming a bit too much. Now, you might say, does that mean that a woman can't have a career and take care of a family? I would have to say that if you look at it, there's a lot of unsuccessful marriages because of that. What people do is up to them. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm just telling you, you go and read the statistics. And look at all these, these actors and actresses and they're together and you hear about it and then later on you see on your webpage or your article that the, um, your homepage, whatever, they break up after 15 years, they break up after 20 years, 15 years. Why? And you read a little bit there and a lot of it is because they never spend time together. You see, for a marriage to be successful, there has to be an effort put into it. When there's too much separation, there's too much one person there, one person there, and they're never hardly together, how can you work on a relationship like that? Then you wonder why the relationship breaks down. So a lot of women themselves are saying, look, I want to take care of my children. I want to be at home. Now, as I've mentioned in the past, when two people work, you come back to the house, it's been closed up all day, uh, apart from the fact that because all the windows are closed, they've got all mould problems now because the houses don't have any ventilation. They come home and then they've got to pick up the children and they've got to cook and then they've got to do... So. When's, where are they invincible? They go, oh, but the men should help. But they do help. A lot of them do help. And they still have breakdowns. And then we have that Jennifer Anderson, whatever her name is there, that actress who's, by the way, half Greek. And she actually says, uh, she actually said that all because women have uteruses doesn't mean they're going to have babies. Women have other interests now, which are to have careers. It's interesting that all these career women are on the dating websites looking for, for men or going to fertility clinics to have babies at 40. Because the career came first, you see. Blessed Theophilax says, the husband holds the rank of leader and provider for his wife. He is the head and protector of the wife. The wife assumes the role of obedience to her husband, for she represents the body of the church, which submits to, her head, to, to the head, just as Christ, who is the head of the church, provides her for her and protects her. Thus the husband is the protector of his body, which is his wife. Because we say that the, a couple, when they m get married, the husband 
which says like the head and the woman is the body and become one organism because the two shall become one. And the husband, if he hates his wife or doesn't take care of his wife, it's like he's abusing his own body because his wife is one with him. Why then should the body not submit to her head, her husband, who provides for her and protects her? And we also read last time from the marriage service that during the marriage service, the priest actually says, Now also, O Master, our Lord and our God, send down your heavenly grace upon these, your servants, name and name, the two names, and grant that this, your handmaid, may in all things be subject unto a husband, and that this, your servant, may be the head of the wife, that they may live according to your will. Now, that woman that married Prince William, Kate, it was all this big thing. The feminists were jumping for joy as they, um, as in, in, as they were um, in a frenzy there. How she wanted out of the marriage service the part where it says about the man to be the man to be the head or the woman to be obedient. She asked that to be taken out, and the feminists were very proud of her. Saint John Chrysostom said. St. Paul places the head in authority and the body in obedience for the sake of peace. Now, my, our friend here said that uh, as a military background, I, there was a, what was it, a chain of command. That's what I kept on forgetting. So we've got, I was saying, order of hierarchy, but another way of saying is chain of command in all those examples that I've said. So in offices, in factories, in schools, what's, what's called, they can call it the order of hierarchy or the chain of command. So what's the chain of command or the order hierarchy in a marriage? The husband's the head and the woman is second authority. And St. John Christopher says, for the sake of peace, there has to be one head. Where there is equal authority, there is never peace, which is what I said before. You can't have in a factory or in an office or in a school or whatever where everyone's equal. In authority, it won't work. In the army, in the navy, in the marines or whatever, it won't work. There has to be a chain of command or, or that, what I said before, the order of hierarchy. He says, where there is equal authority, there's never peace. So if you're not going to get that in worldly sense, how are we going to get it in the marriage? A household cannot be a democracy ruled by everyone but the authority must necessarily rest in one person, says St. John Chrysostom. And he goes on, the wife is a secondary authority, but nevertheless, she possesses real authority and equality of worth. Now we come to the word equality. Now we come to the word equality. So there is equality of a husband and wife in their worth as souls in the eyes of God. But at the same time, even though they're equal in that sense, the husband still retains the role of headship. In this way, the welfare of the household is maintained. Lead your wife and your whole household will be in order and in harmony. Otherwise, the entire household is easily broken up and destroyed. This is what I said earlier on in the previous talk. My, when, I'm, when I've dealt with married people, my main problem is the, with, with the husband. 
trying to get him to, to be the leader. And that's what I can't seem to get a lot of times. They believe that they're okay if, in, the, in a lot of cases, if they're working, bringing home money. That, that means that they've done their duty. But as we're going to read in a, in a few minutes, we're going to see that's not what it means to be a provider and leader. And this is where it all falls apart. A guy who, for example, says, I'm providing for my wife and therefore I'm doing my duty because, say, she doesn't work. Well, what does he say when the wife works and gets more, and gets more money than him? That's a problem then. Then he, has, he, he can't fall back on that thing that, oh, so I'm, I'm helping my wife, I'm, I'm a provider, I'm doing everything. Elder Paisio said, the wife offers her husband trust, devotion and obedience. The husband offers his wife assurance and security that he can protect her. And as I said, you read this all over those blogs, that they do say that. A lot of women do say that. The wife is the noble lady of the household, but also the mature servant. The husband is the captain of the household, but also the lowest labourer. If you remember last week, last time at the talk, I said that line was very, very deep. The husband is the captain of the household, but also the lowest labourer. Because some women say, oh, if we're going to be obedient to the husband, that means we're slaves. And I proved at the last talk, actually, no, the husband's a slave. What's demanded of the husband in the Christian sense is full that he gives his life to his wife. And what woman doesn't want that unless they're feminists and, 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 and out of it? Most marriage problems are usually, this is a note, most marriage problems are usually the result of a wife's wounded reaction to poor leadership and lack of love from her husband. A man wants to love a woman who deeply respects and appreciates him, but this kind of man that a woman appreciates and respects is one who sacrificially loves her, who patiently honours her, who lays down his life for her on a daily basis. Now, that's very, very important. That, in other words, that the man is basically serving his wife on a daily basis, not sometimes. The more the husband loves his wife, the more the husband sacrifices for his wife, the more the wife then honours him and respects him and appreciates his worth. And remember what I said, that Christ himself said, whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Meaning that Christ says that those who are first really are, sl are a slave to everyone, to their family, because they're totally dedicated and leading their family on a daily basis. St John Chrysostom said the following regarding husbands. He said, let us therefore thoroughly care for our wives and children. By doing so, we are making our duty, our responsibility of headship, an easy task. 
Thus, we will have a good defence before Christ's judgment said, a man who doesn't take care of his family will give word at the last judgment. If the husband is worthy and the head sound, then the rest of the body will suffer no harm. If the husband's proper and is uh, as, a, as the head, then the body, meaning the wife, will also be healthy. Paul has precisely described for husband and wife what is fit in behaviour for each. She should reverence him as the head and he should love her as his body. Now we're coming to this word. She should reverence him. And we're going to be hearing a lot as we go on about what is this reverence, respect. Now let's go through some responsibilities of the husband to help you understand. Number one, women who try to open up to their husbands and the husbands fall asleep is not a person who really cares for his wife or is distracted or doesn't answer or dismisses it and says, oh, that's nothing, don't worry about it. In the end, the wives don't express their feelings but just withdraw and become depressed. That's a big problem. Women slowly, slowly close up. Years ago, I remember I rang up, I was speaking to a lady, a woman, and, and, I, and I'm a little bit sensitive, so I could tell there was something wrong, and I said to her, what's wrong? And some women, they open up straight away, and some take a little bit longer. She took a little bit longer, but she opened up and said to me this whole thing that was going on. She was very um, depressed, very upset with the husband, the husband you know, doesn't really take much notice of her, too busy, uh, not affectionate, all those type of things. And she was very, very depressed. Anyway, when I spoke to the husband later on, I go, how's your wife? He goes, good. I go, oh, she's good. He goes, yeah, she's very, I go, how do you know? He goes, oh, I can tell, she's really happy. She's really, really happy. I said, no, she's not. I said, I think she's clinically depressed. And his mouth opened up like a clown. What does that mean? How? How didn't I notice it? And then you wonder why people divorce. Some women are repressed like that for years. See? Doesn't mean a woman... Let's just say the woman works. Let's just say the woman gets more money. But still that's necessary. That sensitivity seeing what pain that she has, what's her problem, what's her anxiety, what's her feelings, what, what, what does she want? The husband should care about the emotional, mental, physical, spiritual state of their wives and children. That's what it also means to be the head. Need to have sensitivity, empathy, sympathy, understanding, affection. Need to acknowledge their wife's worth and their weaknesses, where St. John Christum says that you should praise your wife. And, this, and he said this 1,600 years ago. What are women saying today? Oh, he doesn't even acknowledge me. St. John Christum said that so many years ago, so many centuries ago, 1,600 years ago. When he, and we've got that book on marriage, on the married life. That was a sermons that he did back in Constantinople or Antioch, one of them. On that topic, praise your wife. Speak highly about her. I remember another woman who, was, who would, um, when the husband was with her, 
he wouldn't even hardly talk, didn't even laugh, nothing at all. But then when she would see him with some other people, he'd be talking, laughing, and then she, she just kept that in her for her other years. Just years and years and years and years. And she became chronically depressed as well. And you might say, why don't they open up? Uh, no, it's very difficult. They, uh, a woman opens up when she feels comfortable. But the husband then thinks that, oh, well, at least they have a good sex life. And therefore, everyone should be happy. But we did, we covered a lot of that in the talks on sexual relations. That's not correct either, because the, the, a lot of times there, the woman can feel, oh, he's nice to me. When that time's approaching, and after that I'm rejected again. That only makes the, the hole in their heart deeper. See, that's not good either. Yes, it's true that men are more sexual beings, but women are more emotional. The husband needs to be the overseer of the household and has to know what is going on with all the members of the family. So when I speak to men, I go, how's your, how's your son going? I don't know. How's your wife? I don't know. How's your daughter? I don't know. Oh, I spoke to your wife today. She said that um, one of your children's got a problem. Oh, I, I, I didn't know. Well, why is she telling me, I say to him? Why doesn't she tell you? Because you're unapproachable. See, the word overseer is the same word that they use for the bishop. And the husband has to be like a bishop in his own household. He has to oversee what's going on. Now, let's have a look. We say, uh, another, other words for overseer is, super, uh, oversee is supervise. Lead, control, direct, manage, govern, administer, etc. Doesn't doesn't mean that the woman doesn't know anything. She has a lot of responsibility. But the husband is the ultimate responsible, has the ultimate responsibility and has to know what's going on. The husband should be the main person who disciplines the children, not leave it all to the wife. The wife, that, that's, she can't do that. So what do I hear? Complaints, complaints from the women that say, oh, you know, that he doesn't even discipline the children. They just leave it to me. She's supposed to do everything. Little things like even garbage or something like that. I remember a situation in which there was, uh, the, the husband was working late, and the, the, the wife would go to take the garbage out from, from the house and she would go into the backyard, which was dark because there was no lights there. So she would leave the house, the back from the back door, go into the backyard and put the garbage in the garbage bin in the night, in the dark. And I said to the husband, Why, what, what's, what's going on there? He goes, why, what's wrong? So it's dangerous. Someone could attack her. Why would you do that? Why can't you just say to her, leave the garbage, I'll take it out. 
Oh, I didn't think of it. Making sure that the house is secure. That's the responsibility of the man, to make sure that you have security. Someone just can't come in and, and do bad to your family. So little things like that are very important. The safety of the house, the upkeep of the house. It, women get very sick when they see the whole house run down. It's embarrassing. And they just don't see so the, the husband's not, not doing anything. And what's even worse is when you get the late notices where they're going to threaten to cut off with electricity, so a lot of women have to revert to even paying the bills as well and doing the tax returns for, for the husband's pay and monitoring the credit cards, which are usually maxed out. That, does not, that doesn't show a husband who's very interested in his house, in his family. They're not coming home too much overtime or going out with friends and leaving the, when the wife might be by herself all day and then all of a sudden he goes, oh, I'm going to go out tonight. So she's already waiting for him, which is by nature what women do. They want to be with their husbands. And then all of a sudden he says, I'm going to go out. One psychologist said that if a, if a man's missing for more than 50 hours, including travel time, it's too much and the, relation, the marriage is not going to work. Too many hours being away. It, it, it breaks down the marriage. So in general, my main aim when dealing with married couples is to help the husband understand that he's the head of the family. And for some men, it's like they're spitting blood. It's like it's so difficult for them. So some of them will go and make money, but anything part that, that, I, that I want to do. And leave, leave it for their wives to do everything, basically. And this usually breaks a wife, and that's why these divorces occur. St. Cosmas of Italia, he said that no, no woman can be more virtuous than a woman who comforts and endures her husband. If your husband is bad, you should be more fortunate than a woman who has a good husband because you will receive a greater reward for your soul. Now, obviously there are people here, and people that will listen to the talk, who are in situations where, for example, in the case of the wife, that they're married to someone who's not proper. And the question is, what, does, what do they do? Do they go find someone else? Do they go and commit adultery, or do they get a divorce to find someone else? Which usually they end up going with another 50 people. Is that the answer? Because she says, I deserve better, I want to find someone who's going to love me, someone who cares about me, that they're, they're the words that they use. And, and, and they've got a point in some ways, but what happens to these to uh, to um, to these women? It says if your husband is bad or inappropriate or whatever, you should be more fortunate than a woman who has a good husband because you will receive greater reward for your soul. If the woman endures, she will get far greater reward in heaven than the woman who had a good husband because she suffered. Because, yes, a woman who doesn't have a husband who leads and is proper suffers tremendously. I look at it as being 
that there's no reason why people can't enjoy life as long as it's not sin. And yes, a marriage can be enjoyable. Living together, husband and wife, having children. They're the, that's the joys of life. Seeing grandchildren later on. That's the joys of life. However, there are some people, for example, who don't get married, who don't have that opportunity to have that enjoyment if, it's, if the marriage is proper, because they could be mentally ill, they could be physically ill. And what does the church say about those people who a lot of times are miserable for pretty much the whole life in some ways? What it says about them is that they're martyrs, that because they never received much joy when they were here, they will receive great joy in the next life. And it's the same with a woman or a husband, we'll talk about women now, who has a husband who isn't proper and is suffering, hasn't got a husband that loves her and is affectionate and cares for her. That woman is truly a martyr if, she's, if she endures and doesn't go walkabouts and try to find someone else or divorce, etc. If we look at things spiritually, if we look at life as being on earth only, then yes, then it would make sense that someone would leave that person and go find someone else. But if we understand that we have God's commandments and we understand that this life is only for a short time, then we would understand that, well, even if I'm sick, for a person that's physically sick and can't do much in life, doesn't have that enjoyment like others do, or a person who's mentally sick, or a person who is living in slavery. All those people, if they take their lot, their situation in a godly way, will be given great rewards. So St. Cosma said that clearly. He also taught if you have a bad wife, you should be more fortunate than your neighbour who had a good wife because with the patience that you show, God will have mercy on you and will place you in paradise. It's the same thing. How beautiful it is for a husband, what joy he has when he lives with his wife with in peace and harmony. But if the wife is rebellious, and horrible, then obviously he's not going to receive that joy. He can also leave, or he could take look at it in a Christian way. That's what God, this is my wife, this is what I've been given. This life's short, I will endure. And not only that, perhaps he might even change her. St. Paul, in his epistle to Timothy, says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for that of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If someone doesn't take care of their family, he is to be looked at as a person who is a pagan, in other words, worse, sorry, worse than an unbeliever for a Christian person. And St. John Chrysostom asked the following questions in his explanation of that. What does Paul mean by provide when he says here, but if anyone does not provide for his own, some of you might think, oh, it means food. It means that if he doesn't give his family food or something like that or whatever, clothing. And St. John Christum says, does he mean food? 
I think he means caring about the soul. If you disagree, you further strengthen my argument because if he considers someone who does not provide food as an unbeliever, then what is in store for him who overlooks what is most important and above all most necessary, the salvation of the soul? Saint John Christen believes that St. Paul means not if a person doesn't provide food and clothing, because even pagans do that. That's not a problem. He's talking more about the deeper part of the man's role, which is the caring of the salvation of the soul of his wife, caring for the salvation of the soul of his children, and looking more of into the spiritual. And if he's not doing that, if he's not taking care of the soul of his wife, then he is to be considered worse than an unbeliever. Because as I've mentioned in the previous talks, unbelievers, a lot of them, people that are atheists or don't believe, they actually clothe their children, they feed them, educate them, they even teach them things like truth and honesty and self-sacrifice. Uh, so a lot of our, uh, today, it's embarrassing to say that a lot of people who aren't even in the church bring up their family and, and men take care of their wives better than Orthodox. I don't know why, but there's just very bad examples amongst Orthodox Christians. And I think that, of course, a lot of that problem is the clergy who do not educate their people and let them get married like, like, like it's nothing. Of course, there are some who do some classes and things like that, but the majority just book in and come in. Whether they were sleeping together the night before, that, does, that doesn't matter. What, what matters is they just get the $100 for the fee. Now, in a book which is called Father Arsenyi, Priest, Prisoner, Spiritual Father, excellent book. I've always, I've always St. Vladimir Seminary Press. Uh, he lived between 1893 and 1973. He lived during communism. I'm going to read something which is disturbing, but I want to prove a point. I just took certain parts of it. It was actually, I don't even know how they put it in there. This woman's very confused and unrepentant. But anyway, I'll, I'll, um, I just took out the main part of when I want to prove my point. It says, in the 40s, I got married to a man who was a believer. He was, or in other words, an Orthodox Christian. He was calm and good-hearted and introvert. He didn't talk much, not even with me. He was 10 years older than I. We had two daughters and my mother lived with us. My husband loved me in a consistent, calm way. He spent a great deal of time with the children and he raised them in the faith. We lived comfortably, prayed often at home on Saturday and Sunday. We went to our church where we had a very good priest, Father George. It seemed that there was complete unity and peace in our family. That's where she contradicts herself. How can there be peace in the family and unity and harmony when we're going to read what she writes now? As I said, as a family, we lived in harmony. But suddenly in 1952, an enormous love seized me and engulfed me. I fell in love with a man who was totally foreign to my way of thinking. He did not believe in God, 
but he was good-hearted, responsive, very intelligent and strong-willed. This love struck suddenly. It was he who was drawn to me first with a gentleness and a winning tenderness, with an attentiveness and a caring which all people, and perhaps women especially, appreciate and need. I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to say that my husband was never attentive or tender to me. He was a man of duty and moderation. Now, she says that they were living in harmony. Now, how can they be living in harmony if he didn't, if he, if she never was getting what she wanted, which was affection and tenderness and things like that? Anyway, she was very confused. But the point there, it was that that is one of the main reasons for if a woman is to commit adultery, that's what happens. So that's why it's important for men to really, you might say, oh, it's not, it's not my nature, or I find it hard to be tender and gentle and caring and whatever, then you ask God for help. See, if a person says, I can't do it, it it's like they're atheists because they, they deny that God can give them the grace to, to be able to do it. And I say that, that's blasphemy. That's the purpose of the church. So if the man lacks those qualities, then he should uh, pray and ask God for help and just make attempts. And the wife will very much appreciate those, those um, attempts and the marriage will go in, better, in a better direction. But that's interesting that those words that she used... sensitivity, the tenderness, that to be open, he didn't talk to me. So she went and found someone else that did, which is wrong. But I'm giving you the example because it was very well put. And as I've said, I've dealt with married couples for many years and it's the same story all the time. So that's not far off. Part C... And the wife must fear a husband. Now we come to the, the part that we left out. We had a little bit of a summary there on the other one, or a big summary. Now we come to the part which also causes problems. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must fear her husband. Ephesians 5, line 33. Now we have another problem here. Like when we introduced the one about the head, that man is the head, and, and we examined it, and we found that it was true, exactly what's said. Are we going to discover perhaps that this is true, that, that the wife must fear a husband? But if that's the case, we're going to have a lot of problems. So let's have a look. Let's ask some questions about it. Does this mean that wives should fear their husbands and tremble before them? What kind of marriage is it when a wife fears her husband? If a wife has to fear her husband, wouldn't such a husband be more like a tyrant or a dictator? How can there be love where there is fear? How does it make sense that a husband is commanded to love his wife while at the same time she's commanded to fear him? Like, he loves her, but then she's supposed to fear him. Uh, doesn't this prove the feminist accusation that Christianity represses women? Because that's what they, they, they picked that one. You see, look, look at Christianity. They make the woman to be, to, to be scared of her husband. Why would any woman get married if she has to live in fear in the first place? If that's a commandment, well, why would she get married? Well, what, what, what would be the point of that? 
Does the husband have the right to punish his wife? For example, if she's disobedient or doesn't respect, etc. Does the husband have that right? Now, some translations of the Bible use a different word for fear. See, King James uses the fear word. But other translations say, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, how does one translator use the word fear while another one uses the word respect? Now, respect sounds better, even as some feminists can say, well, why should I respect my husband? And the answer is, go away. Because you've got to the stage where your questions are sickening. The two words seem completely different. We need to maybe examine the Greek. So... When, I used to, when I've read the Bible, I've read different translations, I see sometimes I'm a little bit suspicious when uh, you know, their words are kind of different words and I say you know, maybe the translators were more liberal, maybe they were like a bit out of it, I don't know, I just kind of didn't trust. So I used to actually get quite confused why one translation says fear and another translation says respect. And I didn't really understand this topic myself until I until I started. And as, as I said before, feminists could even say that if the word is respect and not fear, why should I have to respect my husband or why should I respect any man from for that matter? And as I said before, that they've just lost it anyway. Could St. Paul's commandment have another meaning? Like I said in the previous talk, like we read in the Bible a lot of things which are not literal. For example, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed, crippled in other words, or injured, rather than having two hands or two feet to be thrown into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Now, does that mean that if our, if we are, if our hand causes us to sin or if our eye causes us to sin, that we actually do what Christ said. Do we cut out the hand? Do we cut out the eyes? No, the saints didn't do that. So in that case, it's not literal. It has other meanings to it. There's other interpretations. In other words, if someone or something is, is close to you and is causing you to sin, get rid of that person or thing. So, let's go back. And the wife must fear her husband. Could that be literal? Or could it be have another meaning? Like I just read now. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to actually study this part C for the rest of the talk. And before I do that, to understand what that means for them in the, in the context of man and woman, for wife and husband... We have to first look at fear of God. What does this mean? Many of us have heard the expression, the fear of God, to fear God. We have to have fear of God. But not many of us understand exactly what it means. And some people say, see, Christianity is a religion of fear. There are some in the church who say that God is love and that we should not speak about fearing him, like others who say we shouldn't speak about the devil, but only speak about love.
If this is so, then why are there so many references to the word fear in the Bible? I'll give you some examples. One part, Luke 18, line 2, it says, He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. So there's the word fear. Another one says, And I say to you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after they have no more than they can do, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him, meaning God, who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. So the argument that people say that we shouldn't talk about fear or whatever like that is wrong. There is reference to fear in the Bible. And there's an example here where Christ himself says, fear him. Don't fear those who are able to kill the body because your soul lives forever. What you should be scared of is he, meaning God, who's able to kill your soul, meaning to put your soul into hell. That's what you should fear. That's clear that that's a fear. But let's have a look at it more because it's not fully that. Now, St. Dorotheos says that there are two kinds of fear. One is the fear of a beginner and the other is that of a saint. The beginner fears God because he's afraid of going to hell. The saint seeks to please God because he loves him. In this case, the saint is not afraid of some punishment, but because he has tasted the sweetness of being with God, he does not want to lose it. St. Dorotheos calls this perfect fear. So I'll go through that. There are two fears. A lot of us, when we first came into the church, we, and maybe some of us still do, we do have a fear that if we don't do the right thing, we're going to go to hell. But the saints didn't have that type of fear. They had another type of fear, which they called a fear of losing God's grace, a fear of losing the relationship with God. They did not fear punishment. So St. Dorothea says there's two types of fear. Now let's go on to St. Basil the Great. What he says, and it will make more sense, he says there are three reasons people fear God. Firstly, those who avoid sin and do good because they fear punishment in hell, which is what St. Dorothea said, such people are like slaves. And there are people in the church who are at that level. They just fear God, they look at God as being fearful, and they're scared of going to hell. Number two, those who avoid sin and do the commandments because they fear losing the reward of eternal life. There are those who aren't scared of hell, but they, what they do is they say, I'm going to do the commandments because I want to go to heaven. I, I, that's what I'm scared of missing out. I want to go to heaven. Such people are, um, are like labourers. Labourers meaning... Uh, if I do the commandments, then God will pay me with, with heaven. And the third one, those who please God out of love for him and fear losing their close relationship with him, such people are sons of God. So there are three levels. As I said, today a lot of people are at the first level. Some, uh, then we go to the second level, there's quite a few which say, well, I want to go to heaven, so I'm going to, uh, I fear God because I want to get that reward. So let's read it again. Those who avoid sin and do the commandments because they fear losing the reward of eternal life, that's better than the first level. 
which is being scared of hell, that's not a very good level. Elder Paisius talks about these two. And the best level, which most of us may never reach in this life because of our not being very spiritual, those who please God out of love for him and fearing and fear losing their close relationship with him. Such people are sons of God and that's usually when the person's more of a level of a saint. Actually, St. John in his epistle, in his first epistle, chapter 4, line 18, he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love cuts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. But he who fears, in other words, punishment, has not been made perfect in love. So where there is fear, there is no love. So if a woman fears her husband, one can say then really there's no love there. Something's wrong. He who fears punishment has not been made perfect in love. If you read the Gospels, you will see that Christ did use the fear of hell at times. He also spoke about the rewards of heaven and he also spoke about loving God. It depends on each person. Some people, they're at the level that you can only say to them about hell, that's the only thing that they wake up to and they might change their ways. Others can change their ways and come to the church and start doing a spiritual life if, because they want to go to heaven. And the third level, which is, as I said, few, are those who they do a spiritual life because they, uh, they want to, they have a relationship with God and they want to keep that relationship. How does this apply to marriage? Well, this thing to do with the fear. If the husband is required to love his wife, then how does it make sense that a wife should fear a person who loves her and serves her and is willing to sacrifice himself for her? It doesn't make sense. Unless, of course, it's an abusive relationship. As you know, there are women who are in abusive relationships where the men beat them and abuse them and all that, and they say, oh, he does it because he loves me. That's a, that's a madness in itself. Right? So that is what's called an abusive relationship. And the church does not support those type of things. And how can a husband who loves his wife accept that she lives in fear of him? Oh, I love you. And even though you're scared of me, I love you. That doesn't even make sense. Because, as St. John the Evangelist says, there's no fear where love exists. He also says fear has to do with punishment. If a wife is to fear her husband, it means that she fears punishment, that he's going to tell her off or hit her or whatever. Does this mean that the wife should fear her husband because he might punish her? That's why we need to examine this carefully. And where do we go to examine we go to the teachings of the saints and the elders of the church and they're going to explain to us what that means. Does it mean a woman should fear a husband or is there some other meaning to it? They can put the ancient teachings into the right context as well. So that's what we're going to do after the next few minute break 
is um, we're going to go and see what do the saints say about this fear? Because there are a lot of women who basically do fear their husbands. Why? Because sometimes the men, they're very aggressive by nature. They're, they're overpowering. They're intimidating because of their way that they are. And a lot of women do live in fear. And we have to find out whether that's healthy. Is that what St. Paul meant? That's what we'll do. Okay, have a few minute break. Okay, let's go through, let's see what the saints, how they treat this topic about this fear. And let's look what um, St. John Chrysostom. A husband once complained to St. John Chrysostom that his wife did not love him. The saint replied, let's see what he replied. Did he say, tell her off? Did he go and say, make her fear you? Did he ask, did he say to go and hit her or whatever? Let's see what he says. He says, uh, you go home and love her. But you don't understand, said the husband. How can I love her when she doesn't love me? Go home and love her, the saint replied. And that, there's nowhere does it say anything there about fear or to treat her badly. And another one, St. John Chrysostom said, you have seen the amount of obedience necessary. Now hear about the amount of love necessary. So he's saying there that he treated the topic about how a wife should be obedient, obedient, obedient. And he says, well, now let's go to balance that. Yes, the wife has to be obedient, but also let's have a look how the husband has to love. Do you want your wife to be obedient to you? Then be responsible for the care of your wife. Notice that he didn't say again, he didn't say fear, punishment, no. He goes, do you want your wife to be obedient? You don't make a wife to be obedient by forcing her. You don't make a wife to be obedient by making her scared of you. What, what does he say? Do you want your wife to be obedient to you? Then be responsible for the care of your wife. And even if it becomes necessary for you to give your life for her, yes, and even to endure and undergo sufferings, of any kind, do not refuse. So in that section, we hear nothing about fear, nothing about punishment. And we'll be, you will be surprised that a lot of husbands do use fear and punishment, which is, which is really um, contrary. But let's have a look more. And what if my wife refuses to obey me, a husband will ask. Never mind, says St. John Christum. Your obligation is to love her. You do your duty. Even when we don't receive what we deserve from others, we must always do our duty. If your spouse doesn't obey God's law, you are not excused. What does he mean if your spouse doesn't obey God's law? What's God's law? Well, in the case of a wife, to be obedient to the husband. In the case of the husband, to be to love his, uh, his, his wife. That's God's law. So, if you've got a situation where one is not doing his, their duty, is not doing their responsibility, for example, if the husband is not loving his wife, what does the wife do? She will continue to be obedient 
and do her duty as long as it's not against God's law. And what happens if the husband finds his wife is not obedient in another situation? And then St. John Chrysostom says, you must do your duty by taking care of your wife. And that is very, very, very um, powerful. So what does it mean by obeying God's law in the case of spouses? Wives to respect and submit and husbands to love. And he goes on, he says, A wife should respect her husband even when he shows her no love and a husband should love his wife even when she shows him no respect. Then they will both be found to lack nothing since each has fulfilled the commandment given to them. This is... Uh, I read this many years ago, this, uh, and I always applied it when given advice. When you read the elders, the modern elders, the ones that live close to times, they say the same thing. You do your duty. And we can see miracles can occur from, from that. I'll give you an example. There was a situation in which a woman was not doing her duty with the children, for example. She wasn't taking care of the children. So what happened there is that the husband had to basically leave work to take care of the children because she wouldn't do it. And she just sat around all day and uh, knitted. And that's it. And he, the man complained to me and I said, look, you do your duty, you be the head, you take care of your children and leave her there. You just do your duty. Don't tell her off, don't do anything, just you do your duty. Anyway, so what happened was that he was one day in the backyard and he was playing with the children in the backyard and they were climbing on him and they were playing and laughing and having that. And all of a sudden he heard this scream coming from the house, a wailing so he runs inside to the house and he sees his wife inconsolable and crying. He goes, what's wrong? She said that um, I've realised that I've lost my family. By her seeing that he was doing his duty, taking care of the children, not abusing her, leaving her there to knit away, and later on she actually came to her senses and changed. Another example was, this time it was the, a man who wasn't doing his duty. He wasn't taking care of the family. He wasn't coming to prayers. He wasn't uh, talking to the children, wasn't educating them in any way, like t t talking to them, helping them. And the woman complained. I said, look, you do your duty. Tell him nothing. Just you do your duty. You go. You do your work with the children. You do your work as an obedient wife, etc. And what happened was that one day the husband noticed the wife with a couple of children that she had, I think two, and she was with the children, she was talking with them. They were hugging her and this and that, and they were doing their prayers, and just, they just left him. No, no shouting no abuse, didn't say anything to him. She just did her duty. She had for many years, did, she was for many years telling him, 
you're not a proper husband, you're not doing this, you're not doing that, you don't take care, you don't care about me, you don't care about the children, you don't help, you don't do this. Yap, 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 continue, continually. And uh, didn't do anything. He just wouldn't budge. He tried a little bit when he was scared that she might leave him. And then later on, she, he just went back to his old, his old self. I said, stop the yapping, don't say anything, you do your duty, be obedient if it doesn't go against God's commandment, take care of your children, whatever. And then one day when he saw them like that, it just hit him and he realised he lost his family. That he, that he actually was like a stranger in the family and then from then on he changed. And that's why St John Chrysostom says, you do your duty. Another one, he says, always remember the female sex is rather weak and needs a lot of support and a lot of condescension, in other words, a lot of understanding. And provide your wife with everything and endure troubles for her sake, you are obliged to do so. Now, as I said, the feminists don't like to have that because it says in the Bible that the woman is the weaker sex. It doesn't say that she's weak, weaker, weaker than the husband, but not weak completely and women that are honest know that women are more emotional they're more sensitive and uh, they like when their husbands are supportive and helping and in things like that that is what St John Chrysostom says and that's a known and that's a pretty much a known fact there are people who want to go against nature that's their business but here he says that always remember that. And you tell men, your wife has certain weaknesses and you've got to help her or be more understanding that they don't budge a lot of them. Why did God place you as the head of women? So that you suffer for her, the weaknesses of the person that you are leading. Make your authority evident and you make your authority evident when you do not disdain your wife, when you do not oppress her, when you do not treat her badly. Your wife is like a harbour for you. Do not trouble the waters. Do not sink your home. Here, St John Chrysostom says, how a husband is to show his authority. And he says that she shows his authority by not disdaining his wife, by not repressing his wife or repressing when you do not treat her badly, because men say, well, I've got the authority, therefore, as in that position of authority, I can treat my wife badly. But St. John says, that's not what authority means. The authority that the man has means that he treats his wife with respect and love and tenderness and kindness and all other things, sensitivity. That's what it means to, be, to have authority. Your wife is like a harbour for you. Just like a boat is safe in a harbour, that's the same as a husband is safe and is uh, blessed when he lives with his wife in, in this calmness as long as everyone knows their, their, their roles. Do not trouble the waters. Don't treat your wife badly because if you do, you'll sink your home. And that's what happens today.
some examples. A woman had two children and then the husband could not understand that it's difficult for a woman with no support. Because remember in the old days we had the extended family. In other words, when a, when a person had a baby and then she would get support because there was the other women in the village or even other brothers and sisters because they had big families. So if a woman had a child, she had another 10 brothers and sisters that could help her. Then they had the aunties. And had a lot of support. Today, in the way society is, women are having their children and then are confined in the house by themselves a lot of times with no support at all. And I tried to explain that to some men and they just didn't understand. They just couldn't. What's so hard? What's so hard? Oh, I, I, why, you know, all she does is has to take care of the children. I said, you're very, you're very, um, you're not, you're not very um, compassionate and you better watch out because, you know, you might find that the hard way. And he found out the hard way. He had to take care of the children when his wife couldn't take care of them. That was like the example before that I said. Oh yeah, that was the same fella, the one that before. Because he wasn't taking care of his wife and at the end he had to leave his work and then at the end there um, he had to take care of him and then he said it was hard. He didn't understand. Another woman where she was uh, at home and the husband even saw her crying on a number of occasions. Didn't even ask her what's wrong. Didn't say anything to her. And after that, she just, years and years and years, and she goes, I'm going. He goes, oh, what do you want me to do to improve? Too late. That's what, yeah, this, this, this woman wasn't practicing Orthodox Christian, and she, and she left him. But she suffered from what's called post-traumatic because the husband treated her so badly, never really cared about her at all, worked seven days a week, didn't have any feeling. Why she cried? Didn't care. Now he's by himself with his couple of kids there. So, St John Chrysostom continues on now and says, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must fear her husband. Okay. Now we're coming to the point where St. John Chrysostom is going to explain what this fear means. I think we're up to this. Let's have a look. The wife is a second authority. She should not demand equality, for she is subject or obedient to the head. Neither should the husband belittle her subjection, her obedience, for she is the body. In other words, he's saying, not because she is obedient to you, you don't exercise your authority in a bad way. Like you said before, you don't mistreat your wife. You don't say, I'm the boss, you're under me. If the head despises the body, meaning his wife, it will itself die. Rather, let the husband balance her obedience with his love. Now, that part there, it will itself die. What does that mean, the wife's going to die? I think it must mean die spiritually. I don't really know what he means. He just says if you treat your body, meaning your wife, badly, then the, your body 
meaning your wife, it will die. I think it means as a person. So, St. John Chrysostom did not say to take advantage of the wife's obedience, which can happen in these situations when someone's got authority. When you see, even at work or someone gets a position, sometimes they can't handle the authority. And begin, they get proud and they begin to repress those under them or oppress them. And that's what happens with a lot of men. They say, oh, look, I'm the head, I'm the head. And then they treat their wives very badly. St. John Chrysostom said the following regarding a wife who was putting her husband down, calling him names and being disrespectful because he wasn't making much money like other husbands. Let no wife say any such thing. She is her husband's body and is not for her to dictate to her head, but to submit and obey. If she really loved her husband, she would never speak to him like that, but would value him close to her more than all the gold in the world. Therefore, if a husband has a wife who behaves this way, he must never exercise his authority by insulting and abusing her. So where's this accusation that Christianity, that the church represses women, that makes, that it mistreats them? I don't see that here at all. Actually, he says, in this case, St. John Chrysostom is saying to the man, okay, your wife's telling you off, she's abusing you, she's insulting you, she's putting you down. What do you do? You must not treat, insult her and abuse her and, because you are the head, because you have the authority. Now, St. Gregory the Theologian, in his letter to Olympias, uh, it was a woman who was going to get married, and St. Gregory the Theologian wanted to give her a wedding present. And the wedding present was this letter. And in the letter was how the husband and the wife should be in a marriage. That was his present. Isn't that good? Not a blender, not a toaster, not these other stupidities. But that's what people should give as presents. A book about marriage, a talk about marriage. That's the best present. All those things, the presents that you buy, most of them they take back and get the money for it. Something spiritual. And that's what St. Gregory the Theologian gave to this woman. And in there, it's a long letter, but I'll take one part. He says, your husband will always be your enemy if your tongue is out of control, even if you possess many virtues. In other words, even if you go to church and you commune and you do all these great things, but you've got a big mouth, then your husband will uh, be your enemy. Even though, of course, the husband's called to love his wife, but that's a big temptation. A lot of times it causes friction and it takes a very virtuous man to do it. That's the aim. If your wife's talking back to you, whatever, your aim is not to insult and abuse her and the other way around. And that is a problem. Women tend to speak more than men if they've lost. I know they, they can be closed up, but once they let go, we all know. So St. James in his epistle, he says about the tongue, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. 
it is an unruly evil. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. St. James is saying there that the tongue is hard to control. And in a marriage, that's where a lot of problems occur. One comment can destroy a marriage. And that's why St. John Chrysostom spent a lot of time saying, don't abuse your wife, don't tell your wife off, and then saying to the wife, don't speak to your husband like that, control your tongue, both. Because people use harsh words, cruel words, and that is not good for a marriage. St. Cosmas advises husbands, be careful, men, not to look at your wives with a fierce stare, with an angry look. You must not, my brother, treat your wife like a servant. So again, where's the fear here? All what we've read so far, the saints are saying, not to make your wife to be scared of you, even though St. Paul says that. The wife must fear her husband. So that's what we've got to work out. Why did he say that? St. John Christum said, whenever you give your wife advice, always begin by telling her how much you love her. Nothing will persuade her so well to admit the wisdom of your words as her assurance that you are speaking to her with sincere affection. Now that's beautiful because St. Nicodemus also in his book on Christian morality, he says the same thing. When you're going to tell someone their fault, you've got to be careful how you do it because of the ego and, the, and then it can come out to be a whole blow-up, especially in the marriage. And St. John Chrysostom says for the husband, when he's going to go and tell his wife some fault, first he softens her, you know, I love you, this and that, and then slowly to bring up the, what he wants to say. Basically, this is like um, 1,600 years ago, but it's like the exact issues that are happening today. He continues, if you have a difficult wife, you must bear with her bravely. You must correct her faults with patience. If you endure, God who is watching you will reward you for your patience. Your wife may also repent and be saved. Your wife may also repent and be saved. If she does not change, you will not lose your reward for your patience. And I add to that, and for doing your duty. At the end, you haven't lost. The best would be not to lose your wife as well. But if she chooses to remain unrepentant, or if the husband chooses to remain unrepentant, then you don't lose because you will receive a great reward for your endurance, etc. But there's a high chance that with your patience, you can bring your spouse around and change them. St. Tikon, since we're on this topic of faults, when the husband sees any faults in his wife, he must nudge her meekly. For example, in public, if she's doing something which is not right or whatever, he must nudge her meekly, and the wife must submit to her husband in this. Likewise, when a wife sees some fault in her husband, she must strongly encourage him, and he is obliged to hear her. In this manner, their love will be faithful and unbroken, and thereby having established their happiness together, they shall take pleasure in the virtue. 
their life will go on beautifully. Not roughly, you don't embarrass and say, like I remember one woman used to say uh, to her husband, oh, you know, when he used to speak, he'd go, oh, you're an idiot, like in front of everyone. Or the husband putting the wife down publicly. That's not a marriage. So, you can do a little kick under the table, you can do a little nudge, or you can speak later on nicely, etc. That's how it's done. It's the same in the monastery. When a brother or a sister has to speak to someone else because they've noticed something, the rule is that you go up to the person, you bow down, forgive me, whatever. And, most importantly, to have prayed beforehand. I always advise when a husband is going to about to speak to his wife or a wife's about to speak to a husband about some important issue, some to, about a fault, or a, to their children, I advise them first, don't do it unless you've prayed. Pray, even if it takes two, three days, one week. And as soon as you feel in your heart ready, then you go, and because you've prayed, then God will make it all work out. If you go without prayer, then a lot of times the husband can react out of ego, or the wife can react out of ego, and there can be a big fight. And St. Nicodemus also says, a woman should not fear her husband because she is not his servant, but she should honour and respect him. Completely contrary, it seems, to what St. Paul's saying. So, St. Tikon, St. John Chrysostom, St. Cosmas, St. Nicodemus, they're all saying that a wife should not fear her husband. Only a couple of more. And then we go on to explain why it seems like a contradiction. St. Tikon, when explaining the verse and the wife must fear her husband, wrote, According to the word of the apostle, let her reverence you and not you her, and let her be obedient to you and not you her. So when St. Tikon's looking at that verse, he doesn't say fear, he says reverence, that she must reverence her husband. St. Gregory says, the theologian, in, in his letter to Olympias, uh, he said, advised her, first of all, you must respect and love God, and immediately after God, you must respect and love your husband in the same manner as our Lord and Saviour and in accordance with the instructions of the Holy Gospel. No mention of fear. He says, you must respect and love your husband. He didn't say fear. Now, Archimand Wright uh, Vasilius Bakuyanis wrote the book on marriage, that little book that, I've, that most of you have gone. He says, authority without love is tyranny that spreads fear and panic. A man who is the authority of the, of the marriage, who hasn't got love, is like a tyrant that spreads fear and panic. A husband is to be neither a tyrant nor a dictator. He is to love his wife, in other words. He's still alive. Well, he wrote, he's a very well-educated churchman and he says there clearly there's no fear. But we go back to the thing. But why did St. Paul mention fear? Now, Elder Ephraim of Katunakia said something that all of our brotherhood had felt. This is the brotherhood of Elder Joseph, the Hesychus. He said, I've never loved and feed anyone else in the world more than Elder Joseph. Now, he said, I've never loved and feared anyone. Elder Ephraim's, now there's explanation. Elder Ephraim's great fear was a result of his great love. For out of his devoted love for Elder Joseph, 
He was afraid of doing anything that might grieve him. So it wasn't that he was scared of the elder, but he was scared or had feared not to upset him. So again, he used the word feared, but the question is, how is fear the same as respect? So note, it would seem from the above examples that the saints not once mentioned anything to do with fear. Actually, they were against fear. Instead, we heard that a wife should not fear a husband, that she should respect him. In fact, when referring to the verse and the wife must fear a husband, words such as respect and love are used, not fear. This may explain, now we understand, the following. It, the translations are correct. And the wife must see that she fear her husband and let the wife see that she respects her husband, the reality is that fear and respect are the same thing. In other words, you can substitute the word fear with respect because of the Greek meaning, which will come in a minute. Now, if that's true, that you can use respect instead of fear, then why is it in the Bible that you can't, some places where you see the word fear, you can't change it to respect? For example, here's an example here. It says, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. If Let's, let's read it again, it's not, and don't laugh, it's not meant to be funny. Uh, let's read it again and change the word fear to respect to see if it works. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not respect, only believe, and she will be well. So you can't change it here. So in the... In the other one about the husband and wife, you can change the word fear to respect. That's, what this, that's obvious. But here, it can't be changed. Let's do another one. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feed the people. Then we go on. Let's change the word. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they respected the people. That doesn't make sense. So that you can't change that. Now let's read another one. When they, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Let's change the words. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were respectful. But he said to them, it is I, don't be respectful. You see, it doesn't seem to make sense why... In Ephesians, you could change the word fear to respect, but other, other places where you see the same word, because all those words I said, they're all in the Greek the same, why can't you change it? And I'll tell you the answer. In the Oxford Dictionary, the old English origin of the word to fear meant to frighten, but also to revere. In a Greek-English dictionary of the New Testament, it defines the Greek word favel, which is the fee word, as follows. There's two definitions. 
the, 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 the word fear, the Greek word favel, has two. It means to be to fear, to be afraid, or to reverence, to venerate, to marvel, to treat with respect or reverential obedience, to be filled with awe. That explains why we didn't understand when we read, and the woman, the wife, must fear her husband. The reason why we got confused is because the word fear in that Greek word, foveo, which is how it's written there, has two meanings. It means, it can mean to be scared, to be afraid, to be to fear, or it can mean to venerate, to marvel, to treat with respect or reverential obedience, and to be filled with awe. The noun form is phobos, so that's fear, dread, terror, and reverence, respect, and awe. I'm going to go through five examples from the Bible which is meant to be fear and scared. Then I'm going to go through another five examples which is meant to be reverence. To show you that every time you read the Bible and you see the word fear, it doesn't always mean the same thing. Sometimes it means to be scared, to be afraid. Sometimes it means to reverence, to be obedient. So let's go through the five examples. And the, and the angel answered and said to, unto the women, Fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. In this case, it was to do with fear. They got scared. Part two. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. This is about the woman that had the, the flow of blood. And... In this case, another translation is, and the woman having been frightened and trembling. In this case, it's got to do with fear, to be afraid. Same word, but not the reverence one. Number three, while he yet spoke, there came one from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead, trouble not the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, Fear not, only believe, and she shall be made whole. Or, another way of saying he answered him, do not be afraid. In that case, again, that's to do with fear, to be afraid. Number four, when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. In this case, again, it's to do with fear. They were frightened when they saw the pigs running off the cliff and things like that. And the last one, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, or another way of saying it is, of, do not be afraid, to take Mary. In this case again, that's fear, which is not the fear that St. Paul talks about that wives should fear their husband. This one is a real fear, to be, to, to be scared. Now, I'm going to give you five quick examples of the other type of fear. To reverence, to venerate, to marvel, to treat with respect or reverential obedience, to be filled with awe, which will then make us understand what St. Paul meant. Be because 
Herod feared John and protected him, known him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. He, this case was not that Herod was scared of St. John the Baptist, but in this case, the word fee means he respected St. John the Baptist. That's why he says, yet he liked to listen to him. Different, not that other fee. Number two, and he, Zacharias, asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, his name is John. So they all marvelled immediately. His mouth was open, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. That's the case of St. John the Baptist. Uh, another way of saying it is all the neighbours were filled with awe. The same word, awe. Does that mean that the neighbours were scared when they heard about the miraculous birth of St. John the Baptist? No, they were filled with respect, with awe, different to being scared. Same word, but, forvos. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius and a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. That fear, again, is not that he was scared of God, but that he had awe for God, that he had respect for God, that he reverenced God, not the other one. Number four, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Again, that one's not to do with being scared. Listen to this. And walking in the fear of the Lord, if they were scared, how can they go on and say, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? So how can they be comforted by the Holy Spirit and be scared? You see, in this case, when it says that they were walking in the fear of the Lord, it meant that they were walking in the fear of God with respect, with reverence for God. Not the other one which is what people thought St. Paul meant about women fearing their husbands. And the last one, so he said to the paralysed man, get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Another translation said, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God. Another translation says, uh, but when the multitude saw it, they marvelled and glorified God. Another translation said they were awestruck. Another translation said we were filled with fear. All of those translations does not mean that they were scared when they saw the paralysed get up and walk. It means that they, they marvelled, they had reverence, not fear. Why would they fear someone that just got up and walked? So conclusion is that that particular part of St Paul's epistle can be read in three ways. Let's, let's do it. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must fear a husband. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Or, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must reverence her husband. All of them mean the same thing. It doesn't mean to be scared of the husband, which was the first definition. It means that 
the wife is to reverence her husband because the Greek word for fear also means reverence. The Greek word fear has two meanings. One is to be afraid, to be scared, but the other one is to, be, to have reverence. And that's why people got mixed up and thought that Christianity, the church, is actually saying that women should fear their husband. And that's why I read all those things from the fathers and saw not one of them said. On the contrary, it says, your wife should not fear. Now that we have that background knowledge, that actually in the Greek and in ancient English, the word fear has two meanings, now we can make sense, we can understand the saints' uh, teachings now. So, Saint Paisios said, let the wife see that she fears her husband, he quotes Ephesians 5.33. Why should a woman fear her husband, people will protest. What they don't understand is that this kind of fear is filled with respect, while respect is filled with love. It's not possible that I respect someone and not love him. A woman should respect her husband. The man should love his wife. What they do nowadays is to make everything level, in other words, equality. Families end up falling apart because they take the gospel and read it upside down. It's the wife that must obey, says the husband. What he does not understand is that if you don't have love, you cannot make even a little kitten obey you. If you have no love, the other person will not respond and you'll not be able to ask them for anything, even for a glass of water. So now that we've got the teachings all back there, it makes sense what St. Paisus is saying here, that when we say fear, it means respect. And a woman will respect her husband if the husband loves her. And if he doesn't, then it's going to be very hard for that woman to submit to him unless she gets a lot of grace and it's very difficult to respect someone who doesn't love you. And as we said before, those women are looked at as martyrs if, you can, if they can do it. St. Paisius said, the scripture says that women should fear a husband, that is, respect him and that the husband should love his wife. The original Greek text reads, let the wife see that she fears her husband. It is through love that one can have respect. It is through respect that one can have love. What I love, I also respect. What I respect, I also love. In other words, love and respect are not two different things. They are one and the same. He's saying here that it's not what the fear of what we think. When we say about that the woman should fear her husband, it means that she respects him, he loves her. At the same time that she respects him, she also loves him because what she respects, she loves, etc. So it's all filled with love, respect, nothing to do with fear. People, however, depart from this harmony of God and do not understand what the gospel says. The husband misinterprets what the gospel really says and commands his wife as follows. You must fear me. See, because he reads the Bible and he, he thinks that that's what it means, fear. And he goes, oh, you must fear me. But if she feared you, she would not have married you, says the elder. There are also some women who say, 
Why must the wife fear the husband? I don't accept that. What kind of religion is this? There is no equality, which is what we all covered before. So the elders saying there that um, women want equality but they don't, and they think that they have to fear, but it's all wrong. There is no equality in the marriage and women are not supposed to fear their husbands. Fear of God is clear respect for God. So he tries, well, what he does now is he's going to explain what fear by using the word fear of God so we can understand, like I did in the beginning. Fear of God is clearly respect for God, devotion and spiritual reserve. Such fear of God makes one stand in awe before him. It is something sacred. So just like we say we fear God because we reverence him, that's the same as we say that a woman fears her husband, we use the word fear as meaning reverence, not as something that you're scared. And St. Paisa said the equality sought by women can only be applied up to a certain point. Now, he was not against the feminists in certain aspects, which we've mentioned in the talk on feminism, equal pay, all these type of things. He goes, up to a certain point, equality sought by women is good. Nowadays, women mistakenly believe that they're equal to men because they're working in all areas of society, they vote and take an active part in public life. Of course, their souls are equal, but when a husband doesn't love his wife and a wife doesn't respect the husband, ugly scenes will take place in the family. In the old days, it was very serious for a wife to talk back to her husband. Nowadays, a rather careless spirit has entered into the relationship between husband and wife. How simple and beautiful it was back then. Very, very um, simple. Respect for husband means don't talk back. And we also heard before that a man doesn't have a right to abuse and, and speak bad as well. I knew a couple where the husband was very short and the wife was strong and quite tall. She could unload 500 pounds of wheat from the wagon all by herself. That's around 230 kilos. One time when one of the field workers, a tall man himself, tried to tease her, she grabbed him and tossed him like a matchstick because she was, because she was strong. But you should have seen what tender respect and obedience she had for her husband. This is the only way to hold a family together. In other words, she was strong, stronger than her husband. She was tall, the, other, the husband was short. But yet, even though she had this strength, which is rare for women to be that, to be that strong, but still, she said she had tender respect and obedience. And he goes on to say that this is the only way to hold the family together, which is what all the saints have said today. If, the, if we don't have in the family that, that uh, the, the husband to love his wife, the wife to respect her husband, obedience, etc., then the whole thing goes pear-shaped, as they say. Now we go to St John Chrysostom as the last part. St Saint, Saint John Chrysostom said, St Paul speaks to the woman concerning respect, saying that the husband 
is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. We've heard all that. It's a wonderful thing that St. Paul uses that analogy. So we hear, for example, the relationship between a soul, like ourselves, a soul with Christ, and it's looked at as Christ is the bridegroom and the soul is the bride. But we also hear that the church is the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. Why does the church use that as a way to explain things? Why use marriage? Because marriage is such a great thing. That's showing the honour that the church has for marriage. It doesn't use any other example to explain it, but uses marriage because marriage is so holy. And that's why it's continual. They're trying to compare the man and the wife similar to Christ and the church. St. Paul speaks of love and requires him to love and tells him how he should love, thus binding and cementing him to his wife. And you, husbands, when you hear St. Paul say fear or respect, ask for the respect due to you from a free woman, not the fear you would demand from a slave. So he's saying, uh, St. John Christmas is explaining St. Paul and says, you want your wife to not fear you as a slave would fear their, uh, their master. But you want your wife to respect you. She is your body. If you do this, you dishonour yourself by dishonouring your own body. If you make your wife to fear you, then you're like, you're like a relationship of a slave with a master. You've got to make her to respect you as a free woman, not as a slave. And then he goes on, what does this respect involve? She should not stubbornly contradict you, not rebel against your authority as if she were the head of the house. This is enough. I love that part. That's actually a great summary for the whole talk. He says, what is this respect? So obviously it doesn't mean fear to be scared. So when we say a woman should respect her husband or fear him in the, in the right Greek sense, meaning respect, he goes, what does it mean? And now he tells us, number one, she should not stubbornly, con- stubbornly contradict you. The woman should not contradict her husband. Number one, she should not rebel against your authority as if she were the head of the house. This is enough. That's what St. John Christian said. That's it. That's what it means to respect. Don't try and get on top of his head and for you to become the head. Don't contradict. Don't rebel. Don't try and say, God doesn't know what is best for me as a woman. I know better than him. I will be the head. If you desire greater respect from your wife, you must love as you are commanded. Then there will be no need for fear. Love itself will accomplish everything. 
he says to the husband, if you want your wife to respect you a lot, then love her a lot. You want her to respect you a little bit, then love her a little bit. If you don't want her to respect you at all, then don't love her at all, basically. There's no need for fear, he's saying to the men. Why should you make your wife to fear to make you... And there are men that do that. They force their wives to be obedient. They force their wives to respect. I deal with that a lot of times. It's just, it's just a, a horrible thing. One fellow, I remember, he actually um, kicked his wife. And, and he said, because she was talking back, and he kicked her, he says, so that she can have fear and learn who's in charge. Right? That's um, completely contradictory to what we heard today. Also, we should look at the way people have been brought up. Now, there was one fellow who... He was brought up by his father... Sorry, his father taught him negativity towards women. And his father said to him a little story and he said there was a man whose wife would contradict him, be disobedient, talk back, and he just didn't know what to do. She wouldn't listen to him, etc. So she went and, he went and spoke to another man whose wife was obedient, whose wife uh, didn't contradict him. And he said to him, how did you do it? How come your wife listens to you? How come your wife is so, you know, so obedient? Doesn't talk back. My wife doesn't do that. He goes, well, when we first got married, uh, she uh, did do that. From the first day, basically, she started to talk back, contradict, and the cat was walking past, so I picked up the cat and ripped it in, in half. And then from then on, she listens now. That's what that guy heard from when he was young. In other words, the reason why that woman was listening is because she was scared that she was going to be ripped apart. Anyway, so the man said, hmm, that's a good idea. I'm going to go home and do the same. So when he got home and he saw her there and he was there and the wife was yapping, being disrespectful, not being obedient, so he picked up the cat and ripped it in half. The woman said, it's too late. That person, that's, that's what that person heard from when he was young. And then you wonder why that when he got married, he didn't rip the cat, but what he did was he did use fear that the wife was in fear of him. through his voice, through his intimidation. It wasn't a good relationship. That one didn't last either. Now, St. John Christum said, even if you see your wife belittling you or despising and mocking you, still you will be able to subject her to yourself through affection, kindness, and your great regard for her. There is no influence more powerful than the bond of love especially for husband and wife. Again, going back to the duty, that, the, that the, each spouse should do their duty regardless if the spouse is not reciprocating in the right way. 
So what he says here is that you don't bash her, you don't tell her off, you know, because you just, uh, what you do is you can bring her around through affection, kindness, and your great regard for her. And that, I will tell you, uh, is very powerful and has worked. A servant, he says, St. John Christopher says, a servant can be taught obedience through fear, submission. But even a servant, if provoked too much, will soon seek to escape. So a servant, most of the time, because they're slaves, they, uh, they do as they're told out of fear. But if you put too much, if you provoke them too much, then after a while they want to escape because it's too much for them. But, but one's partner for life, the mother of one's children, the source of one's every joy, should never be restrained with fear and threats, but with love and patience. You should never use fear and threats with your wife to make her stay with you or to be obedient or to love you or whatever. It says you have to use love and patience. What kind of marriage can there be when the wife is afraid of her husband, which I thought that just that line is a beautiful title for this talk. What kind of marriage can there be when the wife is afraid of her husband? What sort of satisfaction could a husband himself have if he lives with his wife as if she were a slave and not with a woman by her own free will? Remember in those days it was, it was difficult for women to leave because they, were, they wouldn't have anyone to support them. Now it's easier. But nevertheless, why are they leaving in the first place? St. John Chrysostom said, how difficult it is to have harmony, that word again, how difficult it is to have harmony when husband and wife are not bound together by the power of love. Fear is no substitute for this. You cannot substitute fear for love, he's saying. There's no place in a marriage for fear. So if you think, he continues, that the wife is the loser because she's told to fear her husband, meaning fear, the Greek word meaning respect her husband, and when we say respect, it means to be obedient. So when, I'll read it again. So if you think that the wife is the loser because she's told to fear her husband, remember that the principal duty of love is assigned to the husband and you will see that it is to her advantage. And what do women want? That's what they want. They want men to love them. So I have, I have to explain that again, just make sure you understand. So if you think the wife is the loser because she's told to fear her husband. Now, I underline fear her husband so you understand what that means. Fear her husband means to respect her husband. Respect her husband, what did he say earlier on in the, the previous page? He said, what does respect mean? Don't contradict your husband and don't try and get on top of him and take control. That's what it means. So women say, oh, why should I listen to my husband? Or why should he be the head? I'm a loser because of that. 
And, and St. John Chrysostom says, no, because the, if you are called to respect your husband by submitting to him and being obedient and, being, and for him to be your head, you in return get love and affection and sacrifice, etc. So how are you then the loser? And if you read all those blogs and all those stupid websites that they've got out there, it's all the same thing. They're all saying the same thing. That's what, the women, that's what women want, a lot of them. That's why they're giving up their, their, their jobs. That's why they're renouncing f feminism. As I said, only 40% in America identify as being feminists, and who knows how many of them are scared to take their name off the lift because they won't get persecuted. One actress who plays in some comedy, I'm not interested, but she gets a lot of money. And somewhere along the line, she said in an interview or something, she said, I like, I, I, like I work, I do my whatever, my acting, and then I go home and I really like to cook for my husband. I really enjoy that. Oh, they went crazy. They attacked her and how dare you say that and what would this say? And she had to go back and say, oh, what I meant was something else. She got scared. No one dares to say anything anymore. These people are like some science fiction movie, which you, don't, which you don't even believe, with some monsters that just keep on attacking you. They're like monsters. And whatever you do, you cut their heads off, then another head grows. You kill them, they just come back to life. That's the feminists of today. But the thorn in their flesh, in other words, the stab for them, is that people are leaving their movement. Women are saying, no, I want a man, I, I want a man to love me. I want a man to have that for me. That's right. A teacher has a right to punish their students. A teacher has a right to reprimand, to tell them off, all for the purpose of the good. Uh, a parent has a right to punish the child, to reprimand their children. A bishop has a right to reprimand his priests and deacons, even to not serving and say, okay, you can't serve for a month or two months or three months or forever. In an office, they even reprimand in some ways, like they you know, can even expose you publicly. Teachers are even reprimanded at school. It's allowed everywhere except for one place in the marriage. The marriage is the only place that a husband does not have a right to punish or to use harsh words or anything like that. As a priest, I do do that because of the authority given to me as if, I'm, if I've got souls under me and I, and I can at times speak in an angry way. and I can penance someone, 
but that does not occur in a marriage. If that happens in a marriage, then the whole thing will crumble. Neither is the woman allowed to, to punish the husband through denial of sexual um, rights and all these other things which we've talked about in the other talk. That is a recipe for the biggest uh, um, disaster. That is never to occur. It's very interesting that nowhere does it, it just says love, a patience, and all these type of things. Not that a priest doesn't have love, but he does have the right to reprimand. You foolish person, what are you doing? Don't you care about your soul? Even we even read in the Bible where Christ says, you, you fool, tonight your soul will be... All these harsh words. The, the priest or the bishop can talk about hypocrisy and say, we, don't be hypocrites or things like that, but not in the marriage. There, what did we see? A little nudge. Uh, and very softly to tell the person something, but no punishments and no harsh reprimands and no harsh words. That was throughout this whole talk or on section C. I have a little summary of section C by Blessed Theophilact, who summarises St John Christum's wor words, and the wife must fear her husband, and St Blessed Theophilac says, equality in everything between husband and wife creates instability in the marriage and in the running of the household, which is a summary of what St. John Christum says. Equality in everything between husband and wife creates instability in the marriage and the running of the household. Paul instructs the wife to have reverence for her husband so that by means of her reverence for him, there might be a single authority. So when a wife is said to reverence her husband, it means she is to be obedient and to, be, and to have him as her head. And the, re the purpose for that is so that there can be one authority in the marriage, and that is a single authority, which is the husband. The wife should have respect for her husband, not a slavish submission, not as a slave, but a reverence befitting those who are free, which is none other than the respect, modesty and discretion which she has towards him. Only from this kind of reverence can love be established and love reinforces reverence. The wife should love her husband, being an essential part of him, and she should honour him as her head, as God himself commanded Eve at the beginning of the world, saying, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. We went through all that last, uh, last talk. After Adam and Eve fell from paradise, that God gave for the man to uh, work, cultivate to, for a living, and for the woman to be obedient to the husband. That was from the beginning of uh, that. But a husband might ask, what shall I do if my wife is not reverent and obedient to me? Then you, the husband, must show her much love and persuade her to reverence you. 
And likewise, you, the wife, if you do not love your husband as you should, then at least fulfil your duty and show respect to him. And by this reverence and modesty, you will in the end persuade your husband to love you. Could, ma could a marriage counsellor put it even uh, much better? Why? They got some good things, but they also mix it up with their own stuff. But we see here, this is like the answer for the whole marriage. I'm sure that a lot of you walk away and say, really, we heard tonight everything that there is to know about, those, about, about that issue. If you want your wife to reverence you, then persuade her by loving her. Do you see, O reader, that the apostle has spoken at great length to demonstrate that the husband should love his wife? In a single paragraph, he has explained that the wife should revere her husband and that in marriage, love should be more prevalent than fear. The wife, as we have explained, ought to have reverence for her husband because she is united to him by love, but it should not be the kind of reverence that frightens her and makes her tremble. That kind of reverence does not lead to love and unity, but rather to hatred and conflict. When a wife's scared of a husband, that's not going to have harmony. When a husband doesn't love his wife, there's no harmony. In addition, the wife should have the kind of reverence that restrains her from talking back to her husband, rebelling against him, or striving to have the upper hand in the household. For although the wife is one flesh with her husband and shares an equal authority with her husband over the children that are born, nevertheless, her authority is secondary to that of her husband who has the primary and greater authority. And that's the end of St. Theophilus' summary of what we heard today. Does anyone want to say anything or ask a question about what we heard tonight? In the situation when, um, well, I don't know how it is here, but in Russia it's common that elderly uh, parents come leave and stay with the new family, for example, husband and wife and her mom and his mom, whichever they have to take care of. How do the roles uh, supposed to be in this kind of family? For the mother of bride or new wife? Right. Your, your question is when you have to live with the parents. Yeah. And what happens? I find that sometimes a lot of those situations are excruciating. I, um, what happens is that they, 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 the parents get involved a lot and they can't even understand, for example, that the man is actually an adult now. They still think that he's a kid. And they don't treat him like an adult, but they want to still think he's a child. And some parents, they've got mental issues and they're control freaks and they actually can cause a divorce. Yeah, but in the situation when parents are good, good... Oh, if they're, if they're, good, and they, and if they're good and they know their place and the marriage is not in danger... Um, so the husband will the, be the head of the whole family, including... 
No, he's the head of his. He's the head of his family. Okay. So he, the husband is the head of his family. Then the actual, um, the other parents there are to advise and be supportive, but they have to allow him to be the head of his family. And that's why it says uh, the husband, sorry, the man leaves the parents and the woman leaves her parents and the two become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no one separate. So that means that not even parents should be allowed to cause any um, problem, but they are one, and that family is its own unit. And even if the others live there, you, the, the younger, the husband and wife, show respect to them as parents, etc., take advice, uh, but they're still in, the husband's still he's in charge of that family. Um, someone went to, I think it was Elder Macarius of Optina, and asked the question, I think it was a woman, and she had a dilemma. Her husband wanted her to do one thing, and her mother wanted her to do another thing. And she asked the, the elder there, what should she do? And he said, you must be obedient to your husband, which is above being obedient to your parent. Even though, yes, it's a, it's, it's a commandment to love and respect your, your parents, but above that, once you're married, is that you have to be obedient to your husband as superior as and the other one, if you have to break a commandment, it's better to break the smaller commandment, which in this case is disobedience to the parent, rather than being the greater commandment, which is obedience to your husband. Any other questions before we um, end? Yes, that's a good question. So the question is that some men are incapable, dysfunctional, to be able to lead. Um, someone, and, and, and the same with the woman, but let's just say about the man. So a, a woman marries a person later on to find out that he's really not able to do much at all and that he might have quite a few mental problems and things like that. Uh, that is really, really um, difficult. And if she has to take some initiative for the sake of her family, then she, um, she has to do that because he is not well. So it's like he doesn't really... It's like, it's like he's not even there in a way, isn't it? He's not really doing anything. Uh, and that's quite a lot now. There's a lot of mental illness and people, there's, um, and women that can't take care of the children, it's very, very difficult. So in those situations, um, then out of necessity, not because she wants to, but out of necessity, she has to do more because if not, then the family would fall apart. But it would be very, very difficult for her. And she would be doing it not because she enjoys to be the head, but because it's a necessity for the, for the sake of her children and family. That's different to a person who rebels and wants to be the head because of uh, some demonic reason. I also have some other questions that have been put to me. Question one. 
From what's been said tonight, it would seem from the words of St. Paul that women in general should not be in a position of authority. Does this mean that a man is committing a sin by being under a woman, say in a work situation or a secular situation, like a woman boss? Also, is the woman committing a sin by being in a position of authority over men? And in addition to this, does it mean that a woman should never teach a man, as this would be contrary to St. Paul's words? For example, how about a female teacher, female lecturer, or going to a seminar in which the person who's given the seminar is a woman? So the reason why that question was posed was because of the following two verses from St. Paul's epistle to Timothy, first epistle to Timothy, chapter 2, line 11 to 13, which says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's the first one. And the second one, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, lines 34 to 35, which says... Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So those are the two sections that people think of, and that's why that question was posed. Is it a sin for a man to be under the authority of a woman? in a work situation, say, or is it okay for a man to be a student of a female lecturer, teacher, as we said before? So let's have a look at that because that's, uh, that poses um, a question which often people get confused. So if, if this is the case... How do we explain the fact that the church has saints who were empresses, equals to the apostles, missionary evangelists, establishers of churches, teachers, preachers, apologists, that is, confessors and defenders of the faith, spiritual mothers, counsellors, hymnographers, theologians, Sunday school teachers and scripture teachers throughout the centuries? So... That is a big problem because St. Paul says women should be quiet, women shouldn't teach, women shouldn't have authority over men, and yet the church is full of these uh, of women who did teach and did have authority. So let's look at some examples. St. Paul honours many women in active ministry. In other words, those women who preach the word of God. For example, St. Phoebe. And I'll read to you from Romans chapter 16, lines 1 to 2, where he says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church of Sancria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So he is commending her, honouring her, 
as a person, as a woman who helped him in his, in his missionary work. But he also, St. Paul, in another epistle, he also um, praises two other women, or three women actually, in other two epistles, uh, Evodia, and another one which is Sindichi and Priscilla. And he also he calls them fellow workers of the in the gospel. So let's read that. Philippians chapter four, lines two and three, where he says, I implore Evodia and I implore Sintichi to be of the same mind in the Lord, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who laboured with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And the other one, Romans chapter 16, lines 3 and 4, greet Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla meaning the female, and Aquila was, I think, her husband, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. So in the first two sections that we read earlier, it said that women shouldn't teach, and he, the same person who wrote that, is now saying that he honours, praises these women who did preach the word of God. So it seems that St Paul's contradicting himself. But let's have a look at some more. We have equal to the apostles. Examples of female equal to the apostles who taught men and had authority over them include St Mary Magdalene, equal to the apostles, how about Saint Fortigny equal to the Apostles, Saint Nina equal to the Apostles, Saint Helen equal to the Apostles, Saint Olga equal to the Apostles, and Saint Thecla equal to the Apostles. That's just a few. And let us not pass over that title equal to the Apostles. That's interesting that he that, that the church calls these women, names these women equal to the apostles. Even though the apostles were, of course, men and were ordained, but yet they are given that title as being equal to them. Say Nina, for example, was a 14-year-old slave who evangelised the entire nation of Georgia. So she's an establisher of a church. And Saint Bridget and Saint Patrick of Ireland are considered to be joint enlighteners of Ireland. In other words, St Bridget is equal to St Patrick, even though St Patrick was a bishop. So, so much for this feminism which says that women are not recognised like men. And we go to the third example, now apologists. An apologist of the church is a person who offers an argument in defence of the Christian faith. We have St Catherine, as we know from her life, that she uh, confessed the faith and was a brilliant debater with the pagans of that time, as was St Perpetua. Now we come to another group of women, eldresses and prophetesses. Prophetesses meaning female prophets. We also find female prophets in the Bible, like prophetesses, like the four daughters of Saint Philip. As prophetesses, they would prophesy. That is, they would teach God's, God's law, they would express God's will, 
they would censure the faithful for their sins. In other words, they would reprimand the Christians, including men. They would condemn them. They would threaten them if they, weren't, if they didn't re repent. In other words, they would warn them. And they could also foresee the future. See, a lot of times people are confused, what is a prophet? And think that a prophet is only one who sees the future. But a prophet is, a, is what I just said now. He's a teacher of God's law. They express God's will to the people. They censure people, meaning that they reprimand them if they're not doing God's commandments, etc. And we also have the elders of the church, like mostly monastic, but there were also lay elders who would preach the word of God, would guide people, including men. And so from all those groups that we just heard, all those women were teachers and would preach. And yet, St Paul says women shouldn't teach men and women shouldn't have authority over men. So let's read that again. Yet St Paul wrote, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over men. Now, is St. Paul contradicting himself? In some of his epistles, he says women shouldn't speak and shouldn't teach men. In other places, he praises women who are teaching and preaching. And we also have the church, which also acknowledges women who are preachers and things. From all the above examples that we heard, it is impossible that St. Paul means that all women should remain in complete silence. He can't be meaning that. And that's why when people read the Bible, they read it without having knowing the background, without knowing history, without reading the interpretations. They make conclusions. See, the church is against women because they're not, they don't let women teach, etc. So um, obviously when you read something and you try to make, try to understand it, you always got to think of other things that you've read. And then when you see contradictions, don't say St. Paul's contradicting, but you say, there must be something more to it that I don't know. Don't be proud and think, ah, oh, the church is, uh, that it's contradicted, and that you're smart because you've worked it out. If St. Paul did mean that women are not permitted to teach or to preach, then it would be a sin for women to do so, especially to teach men or preach to men. If this was so, why don't we find any condemnation of this in the teachings and advice of the elders and saints? For example, does Elder Paisio speak against this? Did Elder Fadel speak against this? Did Elder John, Elder Cleo, Elder John of Christiankin of Russia, the other one, Saint Cleopa, that's the modern elders? But how about saints like Saint Nectarius? We don't hear anything. Other saints that, that have been, St. John, Archbishop of Shanghai, we don't hear anything from him. If this was so, then why don't we hear any condemnation? Instead, we find that there are women who taught and preached to men and women who are considered saints of the Orthodox Church, and I just went through a whole list of them before. So that's the section regarding women preaching and teaching. Now let's look at women who had authority, specifically.
because St. Paul did not only say that women shouldn't teach men, but he also said that women should have authority over men. Again, if he meant that, then how do we explain the fact that we have women who were empresses, who had authority over the Byzantine Empire like Saints Irene and Theodora. They were heads of the Byzantine Empire for many years until their sons came of age. They exercised authority over both men and women, including the army. Saint Irene, actually, if you read her life, she used to call herself king. And really, no one objected. In the case of Saint Theodora, the Empress, she brought a triumphant end to the destruction of icons. Saint Tamara, Queen of Georgia, personally led her army against the Muslims and fearlessly defeated them. Those at the time called her king instead of queen. But she personally would ride on her horse with her men she would lead her men, so she had authority over her army. But St. Paul says women shouldn't have authority. Let's read again what he says. I do not permit a woman to assume authority over a man. Seems contradictory. However, if it is a sin for a woman to have authority over men, then why don't we find any condemnation of this in the teachings and vice of the elders and saints. Nothing in the tradition of the church, nothing in the history of the church, lives of saints, the teachings of the elders, modern elders, ancient elders. Instead, we find that there are women who had authority over men who were considered saints of the Orthodox Church, and I just named three of them for you. So let's have an answer to that. We need an answer so that we can clear this up. St. John Christum explains in his interpretation of St. Paul's epistles, those two that I read in the beginning, what he means by women being silent and women not having authority over men. I'll give you a little summary. Uh, St. John Christum explained, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, he said, St. Paul's commandment that women should be silent is specifically referring to his concern about disorder in worship, meaning in the church. In other words, women were disturbing the divine services by speaking. They were speaking too much. Now, this may appear to the ignorant or those who would like to distort the truth that St. Paul's a misogynist, as we've heard earlier on by others. Uh, in other words, that he's anti-woman, he's putting women down because he's saying that they speak a lot. However, if we read the entire section of the first epistle to St. Timothy, which in the modern Bibles today that has a heading, Instructions to Men and Women in the Church. We will notice that he also reprimands men. Let's have a look. I'll read it for you. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, line 8 to 14. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands without anger and quarrelling. And other Bibles, instead of saying quarrelling, other translations say disputing. Others say argument and others say doubting. Now, when I first saw the word men, sometimes we hear mankind, man, the man, man and we know that it's referring to men and women. 
So I looked up the Greek and it said he tus andras, which means males. So in this case, St. Paul is not speaking about men and women, but he's speaking specifically about men. And, he's, and let's go on. I also want the, the women to dress modestly, with decency and moderation, self-control, uh, not with braided hair, in other words, elaborate hairstyles, or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good works appropriate for women who claim that they worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. We explained a lot of that last part in other talks. But what I want to say here is it seems that St. Paul is picking on the weaknesses of men and the weaknesses of women. So St. Paul admonishes men for what? what? For being, it says, uh, he wants them to pray, in other words, to come to the divine services without anger or quarrelling. He reprimands each sex for their particular weakness, Men are in general angry and quarrelsome. In other words, they're arg argumentative, they're confrontational and hot-tempered. While women in general are talkative, emotional. And also he went through here about their hairdos and their clothes. Why? Because that's not something that's a weakness of a man as much as it is of a woman. A woman is more obsessed about her hair. That's why a lot of times men that are bored, they don't care. Women care more about their hair. Women are into their jewellery and women are into their clothes. And they also speak a lot. Now, let's not do what these feminists say, that there's no difference in the genders. We've already established that in Talk 65 and Talk 66 and a little bit today. There are gender differences as much as they want to say that there isn't that men are wired differently to women. Men have certain characteristics, women have other characteristics. And one of those characteristics of men is that they're uh, more aggressive, angry, and women is to do with their hair, speaking a lot, and their clothes, jewelry. Now let's have a look. If you remember from the previous talk, let me remind you what St. Gregory the theologian said about men, which is quite negative. I'm going to read it to you. Yet, we don't hear men taking offence as women do when they hear about their own character weaknesses. Let's see what St. Gregory wrote of, in his letter uh, of advice to a newly married woman. He said, you must surely be aware of how easily anger overtakes men. They can't hold back and they often appear as wild lions. It is at this exact moment that a woman must remain stronger and display her superiority. You must play the role of the lion tamer. What does a lion tamer do when the beast starts roaring? The lion tamer becomes even calmer than usual and through kindness and persistence he overcomes the, his anger. The lion tamer speaks to him kindly in a soft but firm voice, strokes it, attends to it, pats it, 
and little by little calmness is restored. Now St. Gregory, I'm going to look at all the negative things that St. Gregory said about men. He says that they are easily overtaken by anger. They can't hold back. He calls them like wild, he says they appear as wild lions. Then he says that women at this stage should be strong and display superiority. Uh, he says that women are a lion tamer and others that are taming the lion who's the husband who's like a beast. He actually says even a beast. He says, what does a lion tamer do when the beast starts roaring? So he calls men beasts. The lion tamer becomes even calmer than usual. And then he talks about how the woman has to tame the beast, meaning her husband. All that is being said, but if we wrote something similar about a woman, then they're going to say, see, see, it's all misogyny, etc., etc. But we don't hear men complaining because it seems that men seem to be more aware of their own weaknesses than women who are at times proud and get upset with any small thing, which is also one of their characteristics, but anyway. Now, let's have a look. In St. John Chrysostom's commentaries on the verse, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, she must be quiet, he explains that St. Paul is mainly referring to women not teaching or assuming authority over men within the context of liturgical celebrations. In other words, during the divine services, the uh, preaching and the authority was left to the men. And St. Paul does not want women to teach in the um, divine services, to preach or to have authority, not to try to uh, get on top of the priests and the bishops and assume authority. That's left for them. For example, in the Acts of the Apostles, St. Philip's four prophetess daughters are mentioned, as I mentioned earlier. Though the four were female prophets, in other words, they did preach, they did speak, they did teach, they never did that during the liturgical services. In other words, they did not prophesy during the liturgical services. They did it outside of the services because the preaching, reprimanding, enlightening during the services was left for the clergy, the male clergy. Therefore, a woman can have secular authority over a man, but she cannot have authority over a man in a liturgical setting or in the context of marriage. Also, women can teach men, but again, not in a liturgical setting. Now, why God chose men to be priests or bishops and not women, that's a big, big topic, and I did find some very good information on that. There's a lot of things there which I'm not going to go into tonight. Now, women can't stand at the altar, they can't preach in the church, and they can't be the head of the family. Now, we've got a question too. Now that we know that a woman is allowed to have authority over a man, except in marriage, and the liturgical setting, wouldn't it be difficult for her to submit in a marriage and to fear her husband, which as we said earlier, fear means respect. For example, a woman who is a, who is a manager of an organisation and has authority over men and women, she's respected, 
How could she then come home and take the position of an obedient wife who fears her husband? Remember the word fear in, the, in this context means respect. That's a good question. Now, I, I, I did speak about the queen earlier on, but let's look at that. The answer depends on whether the woman truly desires salvation. Tonight we heard that it's God's commandment for a woman to submit to a husband who is her head. And it was clearly shown that this has been the, the teaching of the church for 2,000 years. It is true that a woman in today's society would find this difficult to accept because of the brainwashing, because for many decades now, uh, society has been geared to women having uh, more and more uh, freedom, not to be bound in a marriage, not to be obedient, to have power, etc. all those things that we've heard earlier on. But when salvation is one's aim, everything makes sense. From my experience, when a person does not have salvation as their aim, then I find it difficult to explain many of the commandments of God. Oh, let me remind you of one thing I read today and the talk before. And St. John Christum says, If he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, how much more severely will God judge someone who resists not an external authority, but the authority of her own husband, which God has willed from the beginning? Now that is very powerful. St. Paul is saying we are all called to be obedient to those in authority. And remember, in his times, those in authority were pagans. But still, he was telling the Christians have to be obedient as long as it wasn't against God's law, like giving sacrifice to idols. The Christians were very obedient to the Roman uh, authorities. And I like the last part of St John Christum's word, which says, how much more severely will God judge someone who resists not an external authority like a government, but the authority of her own husband, which God has willed from the beginning. It's God's will. That's how the church teaches. Yes, it is difficult for a woman who has authority to submit to her husband. I'm not going to say that that's easy, especially today. Back in the olden time, or more like decades earlier, that was part of society. It was easier. But in the last years since the feminist revolution and all that type of thing, that has become really difficult because from the time that girls are born, from very young, they are brainwashed on this type of uh, thing of rebellion and hating men and things like that. But let me say, just as hard as it is for them to, to submit to their, to their husband, it, but it is also difficult for a husband to obey the commandment that husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's also difficult. In both cases, the husband and the wife must struggle with all their strength to keep God's commandments, as would someone struggling against anger, jealousy, hate, or sexual sins, pride, self-trust, etc., 
In all cases, we need to put in our own effort and also ask for his grace. So love, sacrifice, obedience are great virtues, and the greater the virtue, the more difficult it is to acquire it. So yes, for a woman to submit to her husband, it's difficult. But for a man to sacrifice himself for his wife, even to the point of giving up his life, to serve his wife, to love his wife, is also difficult. Today, look how people are selfish. In general, people are selfish. And when you look at a marriage, a man who, should be, uh, who shouldn't be selfish, who should give himself to his wife, uh, he finds it difficult because it's like he's possessed with selfishness. So he, find, he has to spit blood to uh, fulfil the commandment that St Paul says, which is that men should love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And women have to spit blood, basically. It's really difficult for her to submit to her husband to be obedient. We heard in talk 65 and 66 the great benefits of obedience. I went through a lot of those things from the monastic saints, that those in obedience can progress quicker than those who are the head. Those who are the head have it harder. I went through a lot of that in detail, that the monastics who were obedient didn't have much problems and they progressed spiritually. Even Elder Joseph, if you read the life of Elder Joseph, even he would say that his disciples who were obedient to him in everything would progress or were progressing faster than what he did in all his years that he lived in the desert as an ascetic. So women are really at an advantage compared to men because by being obedient, they actually become holier in, an, much, in, a, in a much easier way than a man who has the responsibility. And Elder Joseph also says, if you read, as do all, all the saints, that those who are the head actually suffer a lot and the demons attack them more. We went through all that in the, previous, in the earlier talk. Those in authority find the divorce, it's a very big cross. And let's, let me just read one more section as a summary. What St. John Christum said, you have seen the amount of obedience necessary. Uh, in his homily, he said, we just spoke about how a woman has to be obedient to her husband. Now, let's hear about the amount of love necessary. Do you want your wife to be obedient to you? Then be responsible for the care of your wife. And even if it becomes necessary for you to give your life for her, yes, and even to endure and undergo sufferings of any kind, do not refuse. That's, the, that's what God wants of a man. That he is to love his wife to the point of even giving up his life for her. That's a very big thing. So a woman is called to be obedient and a man is called to suffer. 
So a woman has less responsibility in a marriage, according to St. John Chrysostom, will still give word for what she's required, but her responsibility is less than that of the man. And those who have responsibility will know that how much it can crush you. And we've, and we've been through that. I want to end this question with the following um, point. We've heard in the past that Christians living in these days who acquire even the smallest of virtue will be considered greater than even those famous saints that we've heard of. Because today to lead a Christian life is far more difficult than it was in the past because society has become so corrupt and everything is really the opposite. There's not many examples now for Christians, not many examples of holy people. And as I said, for example, a woman who can go through life without an abortion where today it's not like the old days, which was more difficult, a bit, bit, a bit more dangerous at times. An abortion today is so easy, you can even do it at your lunch break. That is a great thing. That A woman who, who can go through life without that will receive far greater crowns than women in the past who never really had the availability as easy as, as, as it is now. Even adultery, a person, a couple that can keep themselves pure in their marriage without falling into adultery when everything is geared towards committing adultery, that couple will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven compared to the past. Even if they don't have other virtues like fasting and the pure prayer and etc., but because they were able to keep even that today, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then we have even magic. That in the past you have to go, as we said, like in the back streets and try to find these people. And but now it's everywhere. It's on the internet. It's you can do phone. You can dial a dial a psychic on the phone. You can go to them in again in your lunch break at work. You can go and find some psychic. Back in the old days, it still was looked at as bad. Kind of people knew. That's why they were in the back streets. People knew that they weren't. It wasn't good. But some people were desperate. Some people were, were silly. However, today, no one even considers that. And for someone to to actually say, "I'm not going to go," uh, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The same today for a woman, even to marry. Is a, is a big thing to commit herself to one person or a man to get married in a society where today it's said, why get married? Why don't you be free? Why don't you do what you want? Uh, you know, for a woman to have more, even to have even any children, it's a big thing because most women aren't even having children. But let's just say that even if you got past two children, have three or four or five children, they will be also called great in the kingdom of heaven because society, everything is against having children in general, but especially having many children where you're mocked. Even by Christians who are, um, are 
quite distant from God, who some even fellow Christians can actually, why do you want that many and why don't you have some freedom and things like that. So there are many, many things today in which, without realising it, we will receive much because it's so difficult for anyone to lead a Christian life today. Everywhere you go, there's temptations. So for a woman to get married and after she's married to submit to her husband according to God's commandment, won't be given one crown, but will be given many, many crowns as a reward. And a man who, in this selfish society that we live in, who gives himself for his wife and loves his wife, dedicates himself to his wife, suffers for his wife and is willing to die for his wife, will be given also many, many crowns. Because it just doesn't happen anymore, hardly. Yes, there are a lot of people that might be married, but their marriages are dry and repulsive in the eyes of God in that they are not fulfilling, the man and wife are not fulfilling, the husband and wife are not fulfilling their roles as God commanded. So don't fall into despair. Yes, I admit, as I said, that it is hard to do those things, but with God's grace, of course, all things are possible. But just for someone to do those things today, in today's society, where, as I said, everything is against us, God will reward richly those people. I remember when I went to Serbia years ago, 20 years ago, and I was at a monastery, and some monks there said that for someone to be keep their orthodoxy in today's world, especially in the West, like Australia, America, England, and all Europe and things like that, where they're not in an orthodox country, because in a lot of orthodox countries, most people are orthodox. But in these countries, there's mixture. And therefore, it's, it's when, as we know from the lives of saints and in the Old Testament, etc., we see that when the Jews mixed with the other religions, they learnt their ways. And they started to lose their um, faith in the true God and started mixing with pagan practices. It's the same with us when we live in a society where there's a lot of heterodox, we start getting influence from them. And uh, we lose our orthodoxy. And that's why today a lot of the orthodox churches in the West more resemble Protestant churches than what they do orthodox churches in that they've abolished fasts, a lot of them, they don't care, can commune, don't worry about the far, um, uh, confession and that no one talks about repentance hardly, no one talks about spiritual struggle. So it's very difficult for one to keep their orthodoxy. Thanks be to God in America, of course, in Canada, that they've got so many traditional monasteries where Orthodox Christians can go, and plus they're very close to Greece and Russia, so they can fly over as easy. In Australia, we're very far away, 
and we haven't got many traditional monasteries, if at all, by visiting often, you get influenced, you see, in a good way. So it is hard. So, a woman who spits blood, a woman who make, puts her effort into struggle with God's grace and acquires obedience, just, you know, of course it's going to be hard, you're going to be disobedient a lot of times, but that's, that's the struggle, just like someone who's struggling with anger or jealousy or whatever struggle that they're, uh, that, that they're going through, they're going to have ups and downs and that's what the whole life is. So a woman may never become perfectly obedient but that's her struggle. She'll fall, pick herself up, repent, and the same with the man. Where, I, where a lot of times where I try to help men and say, okay, you've got to be, not, don't be selfish, look at your wife's needs, look at her feelings, see how she is, and you see that they try, and then they fall, and they try, and they fall. Sometimes they even forget about it uh, because, as I said, we're in a, we live in a selfish society. But they also have to spit blood, and they also will fall into selfishness and neglect of their family uh, and may never acquire a, like a level of, one can say, uh, uh, perfection. But that's the whole point, that God looks at the attempt, he looks at the effort, he looks at the repentance, and that's what counts. So even if a woman, for example because she's been brainwashed and she really finds it difficult to submit to her husband, and usually those type find it difficult to submit to anyone, but let's just say the husband, as long as she is struggling and repentant, then it will be counted to her as if she acquired the virtue because God looks at the disposition, at the heart, how much that person wants. It doesn't matter how many times they fail. He looks at the heart. Now, the same as a man who just can't help being selfish, can't help being negligent, ignoring his wife's needs, not showing love. But he's struggling and fails and desires and wishes that he had the virtue but as long as he's a trying, repenting, trying, falling, repenting, up again, down again, as long as he's in that process, then it will be accounted as if he did that. He had that virtue. Because again, God looks at the heart. Because as I said, back in the olden days, people were not brought up like they are today, selfish and disobedient. Today we are brought up rebellious, disobedient in all ways. It's, it, our souls are full, fully saturated with those passions, more than back in the, back in the older days, where we see people who were a bit more respectful, uh, people had an obedience to teachers, to authorities, to their parents, and they also were more uh, open to serve others, but today, that's not how it is. That those virtues weren't put into us from young children. What was put into us was what we saw on the TV, what we, what all the satanic things we learned at school, and now the younger generation with the internet, etc. That's what's in the soul of people. And because of that, that's why I use the word spit blood, 
it's like you're fighting face to face with a demon because behind the passions are demons and therefore it's really difficult. But those who make attempts will uh, reap fruits and even if they don't acquire the virtue to the level that we should be at, God will still reward us richly if we are in the struggle right up to the day that we die. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy and save us. Amen.